McGraw-Hill Audio presents Wooden, a lifetime of observations and reflections on and off the court. Written by Coach John Wooden and Steve Jamison, read by Bo Bridges, with insights from Bill Walton. This is Steve Jamison with a few thoughts on the man, the coach, I am privileged to work with. Does any sports figure in the 20th century stand astride the record books with more authenticity and authority than Coach John Wooden? He's the architect of perhaps the greatest championship record in all of sports. Ten national championships in 12 years, seven of them in a row. John Wooden shattered all notions of what constitutes supremacy in college basketball, and many would argue supremacy in any sport. Quite simply, he went where no one had ever gone before or since. But there's more. 88 consecutive victories. Previous record, 60. 38 straight NCAA tournament wins. Previous record, 13. Eight undefeated conference championships. Perfect season after perfect season, bringing Coach of the Year award after Coach of the Year award, including selection as Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year in 1972. His lifetime winning percentage was over 80%. Here's what the Los Angeles Times had to say about all of it. Nobody else has ever done that. Nobody else ever will. And nobody else will ever be like John Wooden. So let me tell you how this book came about. I interviewed Coach as part of research I was doing on another project. When I got home and read his words, I realized there was a book waiting to be written. I called him up and said, Coach, I got a great idea for a new book. And he said politely, I politely declined, Steve. I just have too many projects that I have to take care of right now. It never occurred to me that this man, who was 87 years old at the time, was busy full-time with conferences, seminars, speeches, interviews, coaching clinics, not to mention a large extended family of children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren that he loves and spends a lot of time with. I sent him a letter explaining that the book, I had in mind, would neither be a conventional narrative, a biography, nor a how-to book on basketball, but a presentation in a most direct manner of his philosophy and the lessons of life that he was teaching and had been teaching for decades. Most of all, I suggested to him that Wooden, a lifetime of observations and reflections on and off the court, would allow him yet another opportunity to teach. And I reminded him that first and foremost, he considers himself a teacher. While Coach Wooden has never explained to me why he changed his mind about doing this book and fit me and it into his schedule, I suspect that goes to the heart of it. It allows him another opportunity to do what he loves best, teach. Coach, I'm glad you changed your mind. Your message, your example, and your powerful philosophy are greatly needed in 21st century America. And listener, I believe you will share those sentiments as you absorb the words of a very wise, very strong man by the name of John Robert Wooden. This is Coach John Wooden. I want to thank my friends, Bo Bridges and Bill Walton, for their fine effort in making this CD. When I was a boy, we didn't have electricity, let alone computers, television, and CDs. Things have changed a lot. But some things, important things, haven't changed at all. And that's what this book is all about. I hope you enjoy it. These words from Bill Walsh, legendary NFL coach who led the San Francisco 49ers to three Super Bowl titles and revolutionized pro football with his West Coast offense. John Wooden is a philosopher coach in the truest sense, a man whose beliefs, teachings, and wisdom go far beyond sports 
and ultimately address how to bring out the very best in yourself and others in all areas of life. He's a master teacher who understands motivation, organization, and psychology. Coach Wooden is able to successfully share his wisdom because he has a gift for expressing his philosophy directly and simply in a manner accessible and applicable to everyone. Coach Wooden's own life is the embodiment of enduring American values. His priorities are and always have been correct, family, faith, and friends. And he's never veered from them in spite of professional success and celebrity of the highest magnitude. John Wooden is an American legend who would be as comfortable among the ancient sages as he is welcomed and respected by today's citizens and leaders. He is a very special American. Those words from Bill Walsh. Bob Costas, HBO and NBC Sports, says a man of John Wooden's accomplishments and integrity would stand out in any era. But now, almost three decades after he coached his last game, he is in some ways an even more striking figure. He remains the rare sports giant without a marketing plan, without something to hype or sell. As a coach, he was able to adapt to changing circumstances without bending to every trend, without compromising what was at his core. His understanding always went beyond the moment. His thoughts and actions, guided by enduring principles, no less valid today than 85 years ago back home in Indiana. Perhaps that is why, even now, he remains a compelling voice that never has to be raised to be heard. Denny Crum was a former assistant coach to John Wooden at UCLA, then head basketball coach at the University of Louisville. He says, Coach Wooden was, first of all, a teacher. I believe he takes more pleasure from teaching than from all the recognition he amassed during his illustrious career. As an assistant coach under Coach Wooden, I learned more about organizing your time, planning, evaluating, and teaching than in all my years of college put together. He was a master at organizing what needed to be done right down to the last detail and then teaching it the same way. I believe his longevity at the top of the college basketball ladder was no accident. His willingness to listen to the ideas of others and his lack of ego allowed him to change and keep up with the ever-changing game. But don't let that fool you into thinking he was soft. He was as tough a competitor as I have ever met at everything we ever did together. From cribbage to snooker to free throw shooting, he gave no quarter and asked none in return. He wanted to beat you at your best, and usually did. His life away from basketball has been dominated by his family and his faith. Other than his writing and reading, his spare time is spent caring for and loving his family and God. I've never met a nicer or more dedicated family man and Coach Wooden. It is very difficult to put into words what Coach has meant to me both professionally and personally. I guess it would suffice to say that along with my father, he has had a tremendous influence on my life. To try to emulate him both on and off the floor is very difficult to do. He's such a wonderful person in every way. I can't imagine what my life would have been had Coach Wooden not been my guiding light. As the years pass, I appreciate him more and more and can only pray that I can have half as much influence on the young people I coach as he has had on me. May God bless my coach, John Wooden. That from Denny Crum. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, College Basketball Hall of Fame, NBA Hall of Fame, and one of the stars of the UCLA dynasty under Coach Wooden, sent this letter. From the day I met Coach Wooden, I had the utmost confidence in him. It didn't take me very long to appreciate the coolness he possessed. 
Coach taught us self-discipline and was always his own best example. He discouraged expressing emotion on the court, stressing that it would eventually leave us vulnerable to opponents. To this day, I can see my coach calm and confident, twisting a game program between his hands, showing that he shared the players' excitement. The wisdom of Coach Wooden had a profound influence on me as an athlete, but an even greater influence on me as a human being. He is responsible, in part, for the person I am today. Coach and I were simpatico right from the start. That has always meant a great deal to me, both on and off the court. Here's a note from Swen Nader, one of Coach Wooden's former players. In the course of a lifetime, almost everyone is positively affected by someone in a life-changing way. Such a person and I crossed paths many years ago. His love and commitment to living life to the fullest have walked with me all my days since then and are continuing to change me day by day. John Wooden is truly a remarkable man. His simple wisdom and love have changed the course of my life, and for that, I will always be grateful. Hello, Coach Wooden. My name is Bill Walton, and I used to play for you a hundred and some odd years ago now, UCLA class of 1974. I just wanted to let you know how proud, thankful, and appreciative I am for all that you have done, not only for us, the 334 squad members and 166 players that had the privilege of actually becoming lettermen for you at UCLA, but for all the people that you have touched in your remarkable life. I can remember so vividly, Coach, when you first came into my world. As a high school player, I was overwhelmed with what was on the horizon for me, all the dizzying possibilities swirling around with offers of opportunities at the collegiate level that would blow a young boy's mind. Then, when you walked into our family's lives with your message of no promises, but rather a chance to be in part of something special, if we met your criteria of developing as human beings with the requisite human values and personal characteristics, then excelling in the classroom, that we would then be issued a UCLA practice jersey and a chance to try out for your team. I didn't understand what you were doing in those heady days of the late 1960s and early 70s, Coach. I actually thought you were quite nuts from the very beginning. I wanted to play ball, but when you told us that one promise that you would make to us if we came to UCLA, I was willing to listen. It is as clear today as it was back then, at least 36 years ago, Coach, when you promised us that if we were able to make the UCLA basketball team, the one promise that you would make would be that all the other guys in the team would be very good players and people. Because even then, Coach, you knew and tried to tell us so often that our ultimate level of success, happiness, and achievement would be determined by how good our teammates were, how good that guy sitting right next to us would be. Coach, I'm so glad that you gave us all those great lessons of life right from the beginning, even though we wanted no part of any of it. Oh, it just seemed like so much nonsense. Those were different times, Coach. Those were the days of Nixon, Vietnam, the beginnings of Watergate, rock and roll, the Beatles, the Stones, Dylan, the Dead, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, John Lennon. You know, Coach, all your favorites. I couldn't wait to get to college, Coach. My parents were so strict. When I graduated from Helix High School in 1970, I hit the door running. I was out of there on my way to UCLA, free, free, free at last. Little did I know that you would be standing there on the steps of UCLA with that outstretched index finger, welcoming, beckoning me. Come on in here, young man. You're mine for the next four years. I thought my parents were strict. This guy was off the charts. Coach, I can remember to this very day that first practice at beautiful Polly Pavilion. We were ready. We were the chosen ones, handpicked by you to carry on the vision, the dream, the tradition, the legacy of UCLA basketball. 
The six of us were so pumped, so primed, to show you that we were the next great players in the line that you had built. Just teenagers, we had rubbed some baby oil on our tiny muscles that first day, trying to make us look bigger and stronger, when actually we had to wipe the sand off our legs from Santa Monica's beaches. Coach, I know that we told you that we always came straight to practice from the library and church, but truthfully, Coach, we usually came straight from playing beach volleyball all day. And then that first day, you walked out on that court at Pauly, dressed in your practice uniform. Boy, you looked funny. In your mid-60s already and wearing a basketball uniform, dragging that bad leg of yours up and down the court and squinting through those wire-rimmed glasses. I remember, Coach, watching you out of the corner of my eye as you surveyed your kingdom, your classroom, your laboratory. After making sure that all the championship banners were still in place, 1964 and 65, Hazard, Goodrich, Erickson, Washington, and Hirsch, 67, 68, 69, the Alcindor, Allen, and Warren years, then 70 and 71 with Wicks, Rowe, Patterson, Valerie, and Bibby. And now it was our turn, Coach. Finally, satisfied that everything was in its proper order and place, I can remember you calling us over to listen in on that very first day. We dutifully followed you into the locker room, sure that we are going to be getting the keys to becoming the next great player for you and UCLA, convinced that we were going to be given some magic pill, potion, or words that would allow us to make our dreams come true. As we sat there that fateful first day, like sponges ready to soak it all up and in, I can remember you looking at us with those soft, delicate eyes and telling us, men, this is how you put your shoes and socks on. We looked around at each other, teenagers all of us, 17, 18, 19 years old, remarking, this guy is nuts. He's a walking antique. Then, Coach, you proceeded to take your shoes and socks off, and you had those varicose veins, the hammer toes, and that fungus underneath your toenails. It was the grossest thing that I had ever seen. And then you proceeded to show us how to slide your socks on so that there would be no wrinkles and thus no blisters. Then how to tie your shoes so that your equipment would never fail you. And then, Coach, over the next four years, you showed and told us everything that we would ever need to know, not so much for basketball, but for life. You showed us, Coach, how to learn through your four laws of learning, demonstration, imitation, correction, and repetition. You taught us the human values and personal characteristics embodied in that silly pyramid of success. Industriousness and enthusiasm, friendship, loyalty, and cooperation, intentness, alertness, initiative, and self-control. Physical fitness, skill development, commitment to the team, poise, confidence, and at the top, competitive greatness flanked as always by faith and patience. And oh, did we ever think that you had lost your mind. But you never let up, Coach. Never gave in to our whining, complaining, and excuse-making. You kept coming back with those silly little maxims, most often in the early days with, it's not how big you are, it's how big you play. Basketball, like life, is not a game of size and strength, but rather a game of skill, timing, and position. It's not how high you jump, but rather where you are and when you jump. Man, was I ever confused and so full of questions. And I kept pestering you, Coach. Okay, if you're so right and basketball is a game of skill, timing, and position, and not a game of size and strength, why is it, Coach, that Shaq has all the money, Kareem has all the records, and Wilt has 20,000 girlfriends. Coach, I remember you coming right back at me, always with the appropriate response to our constant disagreements. This time with Bill, life is not about material accumulation and physical gratification. It's about training your mind, developing a structure for learning and creativity so that you put yourself in a position to win every day. And Bill, it's also about subjugating your ego to the goals of the team because that is where absolute and enduring success will come from. I was Coach Wooden's slowest learner. I had no idea when I played for him what on earth he was ever talking about. 
He was always trying to get us to develop the ability to overcome the adversity that he knew would eventually arise. We were so young, so idealistic, so successful, so naive. He always talked about creating sources of self-motivation, of refining the two most important skills that any of us would ever need, balance and quickness. He went on endlessly about confidence, perseverance, and the ability to deliver peak performance on command. And we thought it was all just a bunch of gibberish. What did we ever need to listen to this little old man from Martinsville, Indiana for? We were great players. We knew everything already. We fought and challenged him on every front, and he never gave up. He never stopped teaching. He never stopped trying to give us the lessons that he himself had learned the same way he was trying to give to us. The epic confrontations were constant and severe, but he won them all. It didn't make any difference that the battles were over politics, religion, social issues, the war, UCLA co-eds, civil rights, or playing time and shot selection. He closed every argument with Bill. I really admire your obvious, strongly held individual beliefs about this important subject. But Bill, I am the coach here, and I make the decisions. We've enjoyed having you here at UCLA, Bill, and we're going to miss you. I missed a lot during my four years at UCLA, mostly the chance to learn more. But the best part of the whole time there was the practice sessions on the floor with the master teacher. Over the years, I have come to discover that Coach Wooden is the single most important, influential, and inspirational person in my life outside of my mom and dad. And what I wouldn't give to be back on the floor with him one more time, in his element, in his classroom, in his library, with the coach. Those practice sessions, they were the toughest thing any of us ever participated in in our entire lives. Two hours up and down the court, ever faster, and so ultimately challenging on all levels physically, mentally, spiritually, and psychologically. No water, no chairs, no talking, no towels. Young players and an old coach trying to get his message across to students who didn't know what they were getting. Always so positive, so constructive, so upbeat, so driven. Coach Wooden is as selfless a human being as anyone I have ever known. He has given up his life so that other people's dreams could come true. He learned from Mother Teresa that a life not lived for others is not a life. Coach Wooden transformed that to the hardwood where a game not played for others is not a game. Many of you have seen Coach Wooden over the years and know him as the quiet, reserved, dignified man that sits peacefully off to the side, patiently observing and waiting his turn. We got to know him as the caged tiger pacing up and down that sideline. We knew him as the aging former player from Martinsville High and Purdue University, really the first great player in the history of the game. We live the intensity, the passion, the ferocity every day in practice. And the whole time we're out there racing up and down, following his crisp instructions to the exact letter, he'd be throwing out these little sayings, maxims really, that had nothing to do with basketball, but everything to do with life. Things like, be quick, but don't hurry. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Never mistake activity for achievement. I don't want turnovers, but if we're going to have turnovers, I want them to be out of commission, not out of omission. Happiness begins when selfishness ends. The worst things you could do for the ones you love are the things that they could and should do for themselves. Things work out best for those that make the best out of the way things work out. Never be disagreeable just because you disagree. There's nothing stronger than gentleness. Discipline yourself and others won't need to. Always tell the truth. That way you won't have to remember a story. If you don't have time to do it right, when will you find the time to do it over? Big things are accomplished only through the perfection of minor details. Love is the greatest of all words in our language. We're racing up and down that court looking over at this raging lunatic, and finally we've had enough. 
Shut up, coach. Leave us alone. Let us play ball. But he'd come right back at us. Be quick, but don't hurry. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. It's not how big you are. It's how big you play. Basketball is not a game of size and strength, but rather a game of skill, timing, and position. I have four sons, now 28, 26, 24, and 22. They have all lived their entire lives under the giant rainbow that Coach Wooden has cast over my life. Our home is a shrine to Coach and UCLA. I have taken my sons as young boys to Coach's house to have him show them how to put their shoes and socks on. And he still has that fungus underneath his toenails. Goodness gracious sakes alive, we talk about progress? Will somebody please help this poor soul? My children have been chasing their dreams for a long time now. And whatever it is they're doing, I'm telling them, be quick, but don't hurry. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. I'm writing on their school lunch bags. Happiness begins when selfishness ends. And they're coming right back at me. Shut up, Dad. Leave us alone. Let us play ball. And Coach is now observing all this at a distance. Now 93 years old. I thought he was older than that, actually. And if I didn't know better, I'd swear that he's taking Botox treatments. But with his arms folded comfortably across his chest, I can still hear him muttering under his breath, Walton, You are indeed the slowest learner that I've ever had. Now we're in the locker room, ready for the game, and practice is over. There's nothing like that locker room. The wall's breathing down. We're warming up, doing our push-ups, slap fighting, playing pepper with the ball. And the coach walks in. No longer the caged tiger, no longer dressed in his basketball uniform. Now he strides confidently in, dressed immaculately, with his hair pushed back, his suit impeccable, his glasses polished, and his demeanor now that of the church deacon. So calm, so poised, so deliberate, so composed. He has that rolled-up program in his hand. We never knew what was on that program. It could have been anything. He never opened it up. We did know that it wasn't anything to do with plays or strategy. We didn't have any of that. And as he called us together in the sanctuary of the locker room, an eerie quiet fell over the moment. He looked at us peacefully with those piercing eyes and that rolled-up program. And then in the softest but most powerful tone imaginable, he told us, Men... I've done my job. The rest is up to you. When that game starts, I don't want you to ever look over at me on the sidelines because I can't help you anymore. It's on you. Now let's get it going. We raced out of that locker room, the crowd roaring, the band pounding the drums, driving that train, the cheerleaders kicking their legs into the air. It was perfect, racing through the warm-up drills. And then, out of nowhere, Coach Wooden miraculously appeared at the bench. No grand ceremonial entrance, no hype, no ego out of control, no self-promotion, no bodyguards with the funny hats. What does a basketball coach need bodyguards for? No, this was Coach Wooden silently sneaking around behind the bleachers to get to his spot on the bench. And when he got there, he quietly called us over for a last-second meeting. You couldn't hear a thing in the building. It was so loud. White noise, really, what we lived for. But when the 12 of us huddled around our coach, our leader, our teacher, we could hear everything that he said with perfect clarity. He would then proceed with his final message. Men, when you walk out of this building tonight, the first thing I want you to be able to do is to go straight back to your dorm room and open up that closet door and look yourself in that mirror and be able to tell yourself that you did your best tonight and that you didn't beat yourself. Because that is the worst kind of defeat you'll ever suffer and you'll never get over it. We're looking around, rolling our eyes. What is this guy talking about? But why would we ever listen? We were a great team and we had no reason to believe. We won all of our games, setting records that still stand to this very day. 
None of what he had to say ever hit home until we started to lose, until the adversity that came at the very end of our glorious and near-perfect years with the master teacher, the loss at Notre Dame, January 19, 1974, the lost weekend in the Willamette Valley, the NCAA semifinal game with North Carolina State, March 23, 1974. You talk about beating yourself. We were good enough to win them all. We didn't know what we had. We thought it would all just fall into place. We didn't listen to our coach. And in the end, we beat ourselves. And everything that he said and did for us eventually turned out to be prophetic. If we only knew then. Just before pushing us out that final time, Coach looked straight away into our souls and said in closing, Guys, basketball is like life. It's a game, a simple game really, but it's a game that must be played. And remember that players make plays, plays don't make players. And it's not how many shots you make, it's how many shots you take. Now let's get it going up and down. As we walked out for that opening tip, we knew we already had it won, and the other team knew it as well. We were ready to carry out his dream, his vision, his hope, aspirations, and optimism. And as Coach Wooden took his seat, he never got up, no wild gesturing up and down the sidelines, trying to draw attention to himself. He would always look over his left shoulder, looking for his ultimate teammate, Nell, his wife of oh so many years, his high school sweetheart from Martinsville, Indiana, the only girl that he ever kissed. She sat there for every game, all 37 years of his coaching career. They would make eye contact, and Coach would signal to Nell that everything was okay and things would work out just fine. Then he would turn back to the court, and as that ball was tossed up to decide the fate of Western civilization one more time, after telling us to never look over at him on the sideline because there was nothing else he could do for us once that game started, he would take that rolled-up program, raise it to his mouth, and for the next two to two and a half hours, he would unmercifully razz the referees and taunt the other team. Thank you, Coach, for allowing my dreams to come true. Thank you for giving me the greatest life that anyone could ever imagine. I am truly the luckiest guy in the entire world. I got to play for you, Coach, and I can never express in words what you mean to me and what you have done for me and my family. You are simply the greatest. I love you so much. Endless thanks to you for everything. But mostly, Coach, thanks for your patience. Part 1. Families, Values, Virtues I am just a common man who is true to his beliefs. John Wooden My roots go deep in America. I was born on a Friday morning in a little place called Hall, Indiana. It was just after the turn of the 20th century, October 14, 1910. Dad and mother raised my three brothers and me on a small farm in the south-central part of the state until hard times forced our family to move into the nearby town of Martinsville. What I learned back there during those early years in Indiana, the training I got from my father and mother, has stayed with me all my life. That training started with the kind of people my parents were. Nothing is stronger than gentleness. My dad, Joshua Wooden, was a strong man in one sense, but a gentleman. While he could lift heavy things men half his age couldn't lift, he would also read poetry to us each night after a day working in the fields raising corn, hay, wheat, tomatoes, and watermelons. We had a team of mules named Jack and Kate on our farm. Kate would often get stubborn and lie down on me when I was plowing. I couldn't get her up no matter how roughly I treated her. Dad would see my predicament and walk across the field until he was close enough to say, Kate, 
Then she'd get up and start working again. He never touched her in anger. It took me a long time to understand that even a stubborn mule responds to gentleness. My Mother's Great Example My mother, Roxy Anna, had a hard life living and working and raising a family in our little white farmhouse outside Martinsville. She did the washing, scrubbing, ironing, cooking, mending, and canning with no electricity and no inside plumbing. She did it all herself, without any modern conveniences, while helping with the farming and bringing up four rambunctious young sons, Maurice, me, Daniel, and William. At night, during the heat of the Indiana harvest season, Mother would offer us cool slices of watermelon as we sat out on our front porch looking up into the stars. She gave me my first basketball, a wobbly thing sewed together using rolled-up rags she had stuffed into some black cotton hose. Dad nailed an old tomato basket with the bottom knocked out to one end of the hayloft in the barn. That's how I got started playing the game of basketball. Each day, my mother demonstrated great patience and the ability and eagerness to work very hard without complaint. I learned from her what hard work really means and that it's part of life. Hard work comes with the territory. She always knew what had to be done, and she did it. Mother provided a model for how to do my job, regardless of the particular circumstances. The Real Coaches and Teachers A father and mother must be there to set an example for their children, strong and positive models of what to be and how to behave when the youngsters grow up. Being a role model is the most powerful form of educating. Youngsters need good models more than they need critics. It is one of a parent's greatest responsibilities and opportunities. Too often, fathers neglect it because they get so caught up in making a living, they forget to make a life. Strong inside. My father had great inner strength. He was strong in his moral principles, values, and ideals. And like any good father, he wanted to instill them in his four sons. He did that in the manner by which he lived his life. Life's game plan starts early. Dad was one of the wisest people I have ever known, in spite of the fact that both he and mother had only high school educations. My father created a desire in us to learn to read, including some of the Bible every day. He was a very religious man without being overt about it. Like mother, he believed in hard work. He was a good man, strong and positive, who wouldn't speak ill of anyone. Dad was quiet, but when he did say something, he said something. He was the kind of man I set out to be. He was the model. Two sets of threes. My father had what he called his two sets of threes. They were direct and simple rules aimed at how he felt we should conduct ourselves in life. The first set was about honesty. Never lie, never cheat, never steal. It required no explanation. My brothers and I knew what it meant and that he expected us to abide by it. The second set of threes was about dealing with adversity. Don't whine, don't complain, don't make excuses. Some people today may think these are naive or kind of corny, but think a moment about what they mean and who you become if you abide by them. That isn't naive. You don't become corny. Dad's two sets of threes were a compass for me in trying to do the right thing and behaving in a proper manner. Pride or Punishment 
Joshua Wooden was a disciplinarian, but not from a physical point of view. I'd almost rather have taken a whipping than hear him say he was disappointed in something I'd done. I wanted to please him and not let him down with my behavior. It wasn't a fear of punishment that motivated me. It was my desire to live up to his model and expectations. Later, as a teacher, I wanted those under my own supervision to be motivated in the same way, to strive to be their best because I believed in them, rather than from any fear of punishment. The Gift of a Lifetime When I graduated from our little three-room grade school in Centerton, Indiana, I got dressed up in clean overalls for the big event. For my graduation present, Dad gave me an old wrinkled $2 bill that he probably had been hanging on to for some time. He said, Johnny, as long as you have this, you'll never be broke. And he was pretty close to right. Eventually, I gave it to my own son, Jim. Dad also gave me something that day that would shape my entire life, my work, my marriage, my goals, my entire philosophy. It was a card on which he had written a few guidelines. I still carry it with me. On one side was this verse by the Reverend Henry Van Dyke. Four things a man must learn to do if he would make his life more true. To think without confusion clearly, to love his fellow man sincerely, to act from honest motives purely, to trust in God and heaven securely. The little verse was straightforward but profound. Think clearly, have love in your heart, be honest and trust in God. On the other side of the paper, Dad had written out his creed, at the top of the paper, it said seven things to do. It read as follows. One, be true to yourself. Two, help others. Three, make each day your masterpiece. Four, drink deeply from good books, especially the Bible. Five, make friendship a fine art. Six, build a shelter against a rainy day. Seven, pray for guidance and count and give thanks for your blessings every day. All he said when he gave me the little note he had written was, Son, try and live up to these things. I wish I could say I have lived up to them. I have tried. Over the years, as I have attempted to follow his creed, I have gained a deeper understanding of it. Let me share what it means to me after all these years. Be true to yourself. If we are not true to ourselves, we cannot be true to others, our wife, our husband, our family, our profession, and colleagues. As Polonius said to his son Laertes in William Shakespeare's Hamlet, This above all, to thine own self, be true, and it must follow as the night the day thou canst not then be false to any man. This is so true, and I believe it is the first point in Dad's creed for a reason. You must know who you are, and be true to who you are, if you're going to be who you can and should become. You must have the courage to be true to yourself. Help others. Oh, the great joy there is in helping others, perhaps the greatest joy. You cannot have a perfect day without helping others with no thought of getting something in return. When we are helping others with the thought of getting something back, it's not the same at all. Sharing and giving of yourself is joyous. James Russell Lowe wrote, It's not what we give, but what we share, for the gift without the giver is bare. Who gives of himself of his alms feeds three, himself, his hungering neighbor, and me. The basic precept of all the great religions is the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Simply stated, it means help others. Jesus said, 
it is more blessed to give than to receive. We say those words, but how often do we really believe them? They are always true. You can never acquire happiness without giving of yourself to someone else without the expectation of getting something back. And when it comes to giving, I remind myself what Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Rings and jewels are not gifts, but apologies for gifts. The only true gift is a portion of thyself. Make each day your masterpiece. When I was teaching basketball, I urged my players to try their hardest to improve on that very day to make that practice a masterpiece. Too often we get distracted by what is outside our control. Can't do anything about yesterday. The door to the past has been shut and the key thrown away. You can do nothing about tomorrow. It is yet to come. However, tomorrow is in large part determined by what you do today. So make today a masterpiece. You have control over that. This rule is even more important in life than basketball. You have to apply yourself each day to become a little better. By applying yourself to the task of becoming a little better each and every day over a period of time, you will become a lot better. Only then will you approach being the best you can be. It begins by trying to make each day count and knowing you can never make up for a lost day. If a player appeared to be taking it easy in practice, I told him, don't think you can make up for it by working twice as hard tomorrow. If you have it within your power to work twice as hard, why aren't you doing it now? If you sincerely try to do your best to make each day a masterpiece, angels can do no better. Drink deeply from good books, including the Bible. Poetry, biographies, and all the other great books will greatly enrich your life. There are so many that are so good, and they are all available to you. The poetry Dad read to us when we were kids instilled a love of reading, English, books, and knowledge. It was a priceless gift, and one that has enhanced my own life so much. Drink deeply from those great books of your own choosing, and you will enrich yourself. Make friendship a fine art. Don't take friendship for granted. Friendship is giving and sharing of yourself. If just one side works at it, it isn't friendship. You must work at friendship. Make it a fine art. Go more than halfway. It is two-sided, just like marriage. Someone is not a good friend because he or she does good things for you all the time. It's friendship when you do good things for each other. It's showing concern and consideration. Friendship is so valuable and so powerful. We take it for granted, but we shouldn't. At times, when I am feeling low, I hear from a friend and then my worries start to go away and I am on the mend. In spite of all that doctors know, and their studies never end, the best cure of all when spirits fall is a kind note from a friend. John Wooden The first and most important step in friendship is being a friend. Build a shelter against a rainy day. This is not necessarily a material shelter. Your faith, whatever it may be, is the greatest shelter of all. In many ways, we've been taken in by materialism. I'm not saying possessions are unimportant, but we often put them out of proportion ahead of family, faith, and friends. Pray for guidance and count and give thanks for your blessings every day. So often we fail to acknowledge what we have because we're so concerned about what we want. 
we fail to give real thanks for the many blessings for which we did nothing. Our life itself, the flowers, the trees, our family and friends, this moment, all of our blessings we take for granted so much of the time. A wise person once observed how much more pleasant this world would be if we magnified our blessings the way we magnify our disappointments. And of course, with that, we must also pray for guidance. One of my players at UCLA once told me he was embarrassed to have anyone know that he prayed. There's no shame in praying for guidance. It's a sign of strength. Living up to Dad's creed. I am now in my eighth decade, and I would like to be able to tell you that I lived up to Dad's creed. But I'm more like the fellow who said, I am not what I ought to be, not what I want to be, not what I'm going to be, but I am thankful that I am better than I used to be. It's important to keep trying to do what you think is right, no matter how hard it is or how often you fail. You never stop trying. I'm still trying. Give it away to get it back. There is a wonderful, almost mystical law of nature that says three of the things we want most, happiness, freedom, and peace of mind, are always attained when we give them to others. Six of Life's Puzzlers Why is it easier to criticize than to compliment? Why is it easier to give others blame than to give them credit? Why is it that so many who are quick to make suggestions find it so difficult to make decisions? Why can't we realize that it only weakens those we want to help when we do things for them that they should do for themselves? Why is it so much easier to allow emotions rather than reason to control our decisions? Why does the person with the least to say usually take the longest to say it? Trusting Others it has been said that you will be hurt occasionally if you trust too much. This may be true, but you will live in torment if you do not trust enough. Trusting is part of our higher nature. Doubting is a lower instinct. The latter is easy to do, the former more difficult, but so much more rewarding. Politeness and Courtesy You've heard the expression, Politeness and courtesy are a small price to pay for the goodwill of others. In fact, I've used it myself from time to time, even though I don't really agree with it. Being polite and courteous isn't paying a price any more than smiling or being happy is paying a price. You get more than you give when you are polite and courteous. You don't pay. You are paid. What you are. A favorite observation of my dad's was the following. Never believe you're better than anybody else, but remember that you're just as good as everybody else. That's important. No better, but just as good. I attempted to keep that in mind both when we weren't winning national championships and when we were. It helped me avoid getting carried away with myself. It goes back to the importance of having strong guidance and role models in the home. That's where the standards are set. Nellie and I agreed to be agreeable. Nellie Riley caught my eye the first time I ever saw her back at Martinsville High School in Indiana. It was on a warm, star-filled night at the carnival during the summer of my freshman year. I think we probably fell in love right away and didn't even know it. Folks think Nellie and I had a perfect marriage, but it was because we worked at it. 
There are rough patches in any marriage. Very early we understood that there would be times when we disagreed, but there would never be times when we had to be disagreeable. We kept to that rule for over half a century. Nellie and I have a great love for one another, but we understood that even love takes some work. Passion isn't love. Love is more than passion. Passion is temporary. It isn't lasting. Love, real love, lasts. Love and marriage. Love means many things. It means giving. It means sharing. It means forgiving. It means understanding. It means being patient. It means learning. And you must always consider the other side, the other person. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And all those things you must not take for granted, but continue to work at. I agree with Abraham Lincoln. He once said that the best thing a man can do for his children is to love their mother. Marriage is not courtship. Of course, love is the first characteristic of a good husband or a good wife. If you have the love you should have, you'll find everything else is there if you work at it. Young couples get married and don't realize it's different from courtship. You have to work at your marriage. It's two-sided, and you better realize that. I had a successful basketball career, but I believe I had an even more successful marriage. In both work and marriage, you must be considerate and sincerely care about the welfare of the other person. When marriage weakens. Did your marriage start from love? Of course it did. So look back. Were you more considerate then? Have you lost that for some reason? Marriage requires that each partner listen to the other side. It's like what I say about leadership. You must be interested in finding the best way, not in having your own way. The same is true in marriage. Don't be stubborn and insist on having your own way. Look to find a way that works for both of you. Team Wooden People ask if I raised my own family the way I ran the UCLA basketball team. I tell them, no, I ran the team pretty much like I ran my family. Only with the family I had the greatest co-coach working alongside me by the name of Nellie. Family First This may seem like false modesty, but it isn't intended to be. I am happy my teams at UCLA and elsewhere did well, and we earned a measure of recognition, but all of that is nothing compared to my family. Nellie, our two children, our seven grandchildren, and all ten of our great-grandchildren. All that love is immeasurable. My great-granddaughter, Corey, asked me the other day, Papa, how much longer are you going to live? I had to chuckle because when you're my age, people tend to be a little more diplomatic with questions like that. Corey, dear, I said, why do you ask me that? Because I will be able to drive a car in six more years and I want you to teach me how, Papa. I thought, what an honor she has given me. Your family is what counts, and you must always remember that as you get caught up in your own professional responsibilities. I'm very proud of the fact that while all the records were being set at UCLA by our basketball teams, I felt exactly the same way. Families first. Always. Always. Sports, books, and kids. Most kids, especially boys, are drawn to sports and would rather pick up a basketball or baseball than a book. This is where parents must guide the youngster's thinking. Sports are fine, 
But children must be exposed to other things by their mothers and fathers, and that includes books, reading, learning. My own love of poetry came directly from my dad's willingness to read to all his boys each night back on the farm. I was exposed to reading very early on and developed a love for it before I even realized it. It has stayed with me to my great benefit all of my life. All three of my brothers became teachers. A child must develop a love of academics early, and it usually doesn't just happen. Mom and Dad have to provide the guidance with how they spend their time. Parents, Children, and Goals A parent can help direct a child when it comes to goals. Show leadership, show discipline, show industriousness, have traditional values. The person you are is the person your child will become. Mentors Mentors, adults who provide direction and a good example, are very important to youngsters. I know this because I had three who were so important in my life. Mr. Earl Warner was my country grade school principal, teacher, and coach back in Centerton, Indiana. From Mr. Warner, I learned that there are no stars or privileged individuals. He would not compromise his principles for the sake of convenience, although he recognized the right of individuals to differ in their opinions on issues. And when he was wrong, he demonstrated that he was man enough to admit it, without rationalization or alibi. My Martinsville High School coach, Mr. Glenn Curtis, had a tremendous talent for getting individuals and teams to rise to great heights, to near their uppermost level of competency. He was also a fine teacher of fundamentals, whom I tried to emulate in my own teaching later on. And Mr. Ward Piggy Lambert, my coach at Purdue University, demonstrated extraordinary devotion to his principles and was willing to suffer whatever consequences that entailed. For example, Coach Lambert believed that all intercollegiate games should be played on or near the campus of one of the participating schools. This, of course, ran counter to what was required in the playoffs, where games were often played on distant courts. Coach felt this deprived the students of the colleges involved and imposed an unfair travel burden on them. He also believed it was inappropriate to hold intercollegiate competitions in commercial venues. In 1940, Purdue University won the Big Ten title and along with it a trip to the playoffs in Madison Square Garden. Coach Lambert subsequently withdrew Purdue's basketball team from the national tournament. Indiana, the team that had finished just behind Purdue in the standings, was the replacement team and won the national championship that year. Coach Lambert held to his principles. He was true to his beliefs. My goodness, how fortunate I was as a youngster to have been positively influenced by these adults. I believe that we have an obligation as adults to help youngsters in a similar manner. Mr. Lambert, Mr. Curtis, and Mr. Warner, great teachers, leaders, coaches. A parent talks to a child before the first game. This is your first game, my child. I hope you win. I hope you win for your sake, not mine because winning's nice. It's a good feeling, like the whole world is yours. But it passes, this feeling, and what lasts is what you've learned. And what you learn about is life. That's what sports is all about, life. The whole thing is played out in an afternoon, the happiness of life, the miseries, the joys, the heartbreaks. There's no telling what'll turn up, there's no telling whether they'll toss you out in the first five minutes or whether you'll stay for the long haul. There's no telling how you'll do. You might be a hero or you might be absolutely nothing. 
There's just no telling. Too much depends on chance, on how the ball bounces. I'm not talking about the game, my child. I'm talking about life. But it's life that the game is all about, just as I said. Because every game is life. And life is a game, a serious game. Dead serious. But that's what you do with serious things. You do your best. You take what comes, you take what comes, and you run with it. Winning is fun, sure. But winning is not the point. Wanting to win is the point. Not giving up is the point. Never being satisfied with what you've done is the point. Never letting up is the point. Never letting anyone down is the point. Play to win, sure, but lose like a champion because it's not winning that counts. What counts is trying. You are more influential than you think. Like it or not, we have influence of many different kinds in many different places and should conduct ourselves in an appropriate manner. This verse is correct. More often than we e'er suspect, the lives of others we do affect. Superstars who don't want the responsibility that comes with public acclaim don't have that choice. They are role models whether they like it or not. They can't simply announce that they intend to shirk their responsibility. They are role models, either good or bad. So are you. So am I. I believe we have an obligation to make that model a positive one. Commend. Don't criticize. When a child does something well, commendation is a powerful tool. One of the most powerful motivating tools you can use is the pat on the back. Yes, occasionally the pat must be a little lower and a little harder, but too often parents neglect the praise. They are quick to criticize and slow to commend. Parenting and Coaching I think parenting and coaching or teaching are the same thing, and they are the two most important professions in the world. Parents are coaches, the first coaches a child has. Too many parents expect the coaches and teachers at school to do what they are not doing at home. The parents must set the foundation early. It is often too late by the time a child goes to school. My favorite four-letter words, kids and love. The greatest word in the whole dictionary is love. Love your children. Listen to them. Share with them. Remember that love is the most powerful medicine in the world. Do not force them or drive them too hard. Set the example of what you want them to be. Try always to be a good model. Children are impatient. They want to do right, but maybe they don't know how. Maybe you haven't taught them how. Being a good example is a powerful teaching device. This verse is accurate. No written word nor spoken plea can teach our youth what they should be. Nor all the books and all the shelves... It's what the teachers are themselves. I think that's it. Those teachers and coaches are the mothers and fathers, and their most powerful tool is love. Character. Be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Character is what you really are. Reputation is what people say you are. Reputation is often based on character, but not always. Character is how you react to things sensibly without getting carried away by yourself or your circumstances. A person of character is trustworthy and honest, and for a dollar he or she will give you a dollar. The other kind of person looks for the easy way out. I like to think the players I coached, however they came to UCLA, 
left as men of character. But in truth, if they didn't have it when they came, I couldn't give it to them. By then it was too late. That's a job for a mother and father. The Fundamental Goal The goal in life is just the same as in basketball. Make the effort to do the best you are capable of doing in marriage, at your job, in the community, for your country. Make the effort to contribute in whatever way you can. You may do it materially or with time, ideas, or work. Making the effort to contribute is what counts. The effort is what counts in everything. Perfection. Perfection is what you are striving for, but perfection is an impossibility. However, striving for perfection is not an impossibility. Do the best you can under the conditions that exist. That is what counts. Our teams at UCLA had four perfect seasons, but we never played a perfect game, never played as well as we could. That's perfection. We didn't reach perfection, but we constantly strove toward it. I believe there is nothing wrong with the other fellow being better than you are if you've prepared and are functioning in the way you've tried to prepare. That's all you can do. But there is something wrong if you've failed to measure up to your ability because you haven't prepared. Priorities. My parents and early teachers tried to instill these priorities, family, faith, and friends. I've lived my life valuing those things most of all. Family? Obviously. Friends? Of course. And I tell people I definitely believe in God. I just hope God believes in me. Learn forever. Die tomorrow. Early on, I came to believe that you should learn as if you were going to live forever and live as if you were going to die tomorrow. What does this mean? In the simplest way, I would explain it like this. Always be learning acquiring knowledge and seeking wisdom with the sense that you are immortal and that you will need much knowledge and wisdom for that long journey ahead. Know that when you are through learning, you are through. But I want to live that life as if I were going to die tomorrow, with relish, immediacy, and the right priorities. I also will not waste even a minute. Faults are fine. I probably have all the same faults anyone has, and so do you. There's nothing wrong with that. Having faults means you're human. You're alive and breathing. There's nothing wrong with having faults so long as you work conscientiously to correct them. How hard you work at correcting your faults reveals your character. Timeless Traits Some say I believe in old-fashioned traits, courtesy, politeness, and consideration. I do believe in these qualities, but they aren't old-fashioned. They never go out of style, even when they seem to be increasingly scarce. I believe they are still common. We just see their opposites so much in the media that we think that's all there is. People like to help, to be polite, to be considerate. I believe it's basic human nature. And it's a funny thing. When you start displaying courtesy, politeness, and consideration, people start displaying them right back giving, and receiving. I'm old enough to remember that when President Calvin Coolidge observed, no person was ever honored for what he received. Honor has been the reward for what he gave. It was true back then, and it's still true today. Are you looking for the right things? 
There's an old story about a fellow who went to a small town in Indiana with the thought of possibly moving his family there. What kind of people live around here? He asked the attendant at the local filling station. Well, the attendant replied as he checked the oil, what kind of people live back where you're from? The visitor took a swallow of his cherry soda and replied, they're ornery, mean, and dishonest. The attendant looked up and answered, Mr., you'll find him about like that around here, too. A few weeks later, another gentleman stopped by the gas station on a muggy July afternoon with the same question. Excuse me, he said as he mopped off his brow. I'm thinking of moving to your town with my family. What kind of people live around these parts? Again, the attendant asked. Well, what kind of people live back where you're from? The stranger thought for a moment and replied, I find them to be kind, decent, and honest folks. The gas station attendant looked up and said, Mister, you'll find them about like that around here, too. It's so true. You often find what you're looking for. Apples Every year you hear about a few bad apples in one profession or another, law, religion, business, anything. But the percentage of bad apples is tiny, probably about the same as it's always been. The percentage of good apples is large. We just don't hear about them. People complain about all the bad politicians, and it does seem that so many of them running for office are being dishonest, some perhaps without realizing it. They make promises they know they can't keep and cast harsh aspersions on one another. Still, it's about the same in that regard as it's always been. Plenty of good ones and a few who get all the attention. The vast majority of Americans are good. The mothers and fathers, the working people, the children, the vast, overwhelming majority, millions and millions and millions. A small, small percentage are otherwise. They get the attention. But we mustn't forget the tremendous good we have within us as a people. I have a very positive opinion of America and our citizens. My opinion of the media and what they try to tell us about ourselves is perhaps not quite as high although there, too, the majority of them are good and mean well. The media play up what's wrong more than what's right, and most of what we have is right. As we work to correct what is wrong, we must always keep in mind all the things that are right with America and Americans. Bringing out the best in people. People want to believe you are sincerely interested in them as persons, not just for what they can do for you. You can't fake it. If you don't mean it, they know it, just as you'd know if someone were pretending to be interested in you. In the workplace, you'll get better cooperation and results if you are sincerely interested in people's families and interests, not simply how they do their job. This will bring productive results. Most people try to live up to expectations. It always comes back to courtesy, politeness, and consideration. Way back when I grew up in Indiana in the 20s, People were nuts for basketball, just like they are today. I fell in love with it, too, starting with that tomato basket nailed to the hayloft in our barn. Here's a little example of how the people in my hometown felt about the game. When I went to high school in Martinsville, there was a sign posted outside town that read, Martinsville, Indiana, population 4,800. However, our high school gymnasium seated 5,200 people. 400 more than lived in the whole town, and it was much like that all over the state. Our gym was always full for games. When the state basketball tournament was played at Butler Fieldhouse, the seating was about 18,000, 
but they could have sold far more tickets for every game. I grew up in that hotbed of basketball where people were absolutely nuts for it. I didn't think so at the time, but in reflection, maybe we had it out of proportion. Five more puzzlers. Why is it so difficult to realize that others are more likely to listen to us if we first listen to them? Why is it so much easier to be negative than positive? Why is it so difficult to motivate ourselves when we know that results come only through motivation? Why is it so difficult to say thank you to someone when those are two of our own favorite words to hear? Why do we dread adversity when we know that facing it is the only way to become stronger, smarter, better? The family has changed. The family unit has suffered since World War II, perhaps because so many men and women left the home to go off to war or to work in factories related to the war effort. They realized after the war that they could have more material things if they continued to work outside the home. This has increased more and more right up to the present day. The result? More and more latchkey children, kids whose parents are both away too much. I am inclined to feel that our society as a whole has become so infatuated with material things that we have gotten away from the fundamental values and ideals. We seek happiness in the wrong places and in the wrong form. This is not to say people weren't interested in material things before World War II, but that's when it really seemed to start. Now parents will say, we're just trying to make ends meet, and they're telling the truth. But if you think too much about the pursuit of material things, you're going to hurt those youngsters you're working so hard to buy material things for. The Greatest Joy Happiness is in many things. It's in love, it's in sharing, but most of all, it's in being at peace with yourself, knowing that you are making the effort, the full effort, to do what is right. True happiness comes from the things that cannot be taken away from you. Making the full effort to do the right thing can never be taken away from you. I believe the greatest joy one can have is doing something for someone else without any thought of getting something in return. Peer Pressure Youngsters today often blame others for their own conduct. I tell youngsters at basketball clinics, if you're blaming these things on others, doing it simply because they are, that shows weakness on your part. You're making excuses, giving yourself an alibi, trying to condone what you're doing. You're blaming somebody else, and that's weakness. You know what's right and wrong. I know you do. It's the poorest excuse in the world to say, well, somebody else did it, so I have to do it. That's no different from saying, I've got to rob a bank because the other fellow did. It goes right back to the first point on Dad's seven-point creed. Be true to yourself. You know what's right. Don't let someone else decide for you. Accepting our responsibility. There have been many wars fought and millions of lives lost because leaders differed with other leaders in regard to religion or race. You and I must accept some accountability for future bloodshed if each and every day we don't do something in our own way to alleviate prejudice in ourselves or others. A lesson on emotion and language. My older brother Maurice and I were cleaning out adjoining stalls in the barn early one Saturday morning when he tossed a pitchfork's worth of manure in my face. I was furious and went after him. He was three years older than me, 
so I couldn't do much against him at the time, but in the process I called him a name I shouldn't have. My father overheard it and gave me the only real licking I ever got. I knew I had it coming, so I accepted it a little better than I might have otherwise. Maurice got a good smacking, too. I believe it was even harder than mine. For whatever reasons, I learned something that has stayed with me to this very day and has been very important to me throughout my life. Control your temper and don't use profanity. Of course, it's a lot easier to avoid the latter if you remember the former. A reminder, be true to yourself. In 1932, the year I graduated from college, the old professional basketball league out east broke up and a team of players from the original New York Celtics was getting ready to go around the country on a barnstorming tour. I had been an All-American for three years at Purdue University as well as College Player of the Year, and because of that had gotten a lot of publicity. The Celtics offered me $5,000 to join them on the tour. At the time, $5,000 was a huge sum. A job where I would teach five English classes a day and coach four sports, in addition to being athletic director, would bring in only $1,500 a year. While playing professional basketball was neither what I had planned to do nor what I had studied in class, I was very tempted to go barnstorming. I went to my college coach, Piggy Lambert, a man of extremely high principles, and told him about the offer. I asked for his advice on what to do. Coach Lambert thought for a moment as he shuffled some papers around on his desk. Finally, he looked up at me and said, That's a lot of money, isn't it, John? I smiled and chuckled self-consciously. Yes, it, it sure is, Coach. It's a lot of money. Coach Lambert didn't respond immediately. Then he asked, Is that what you came to Purdue for? I was puzzled. What do you mean, Coach? I replied. I mean, did you come to this university so you could go out traveling around in professional athletics? I blinked, cleared my throat, and stared down at my shoes. No, I, I didn't come here to do that, sir. I came to get an education. Let me ask you something, John. Did you get an education? Yes, I believe I did, sir. A good one, I replied. Well, he said, then maybe you should use it. But that's a decision you'll have to make. I can't decide for you. You'll have to decide for yourself. Coach Lambert had given me my answer. He had gotten me back to Dad's first creed. Be true to yourself. Deep down, I had known what the correct decision was. Coach Lambert just helped bringing it out. I really wanted to teach and coach. In life, we're not always lucky enough to have someone help us with important decisions. Most of the time, you have to figure it out for yourself, and it may be confusing and difficult. You'll usually do all right, though, if you have the courage to be true to yourself. Make fate your friend. Fate plays a part in each of our lives. I was teaching and coaching at Indiana State Teachers College when I was offered coaching positions at both the University of Minnesota and UCLA. I was inclined to go with Minnesota because it was in the Midwest, but there was a little hitch in the offer. They wanted me to keep Dave McMillan, the fellow I would be replacing, as an assistant. I didn't think that would be for the best, so they offered to consider giving Mr. McMillan another position at the university, one acceptable to him. However, this would take a few days for the board to determine. They promised they would call me Saturday at 6 p.m. with their decision. I told them, 
If they could make the change and it was acceptable to Mr. McMillan, I would come to Minnesota and coach their basketball team. Meanwhile, UCLA was waiting for a decision. I told them to call me on Saturday night at 7. By then, I would know what Minnesota had decided. I informed UCLA that if Minnesota made the offer, I would be staying in the Midwest. But fate stepped in and changed things. On the day the University of Minnesota was supposed to call me, a blizzard hit the Twin Cities and knocked out all phone service in and around Minneapolis. Unaware of the situation, I waited patiently for the call. None came. Not at 6, not at 6.30. My phone didn't ring at 6.45. However, right on the button at 7 p.m., UCLA called. I assumed Minnesota had decided against offering me the coaching position, so I accepted UCLA's offer. Almost immediately after I finished talking with UCLA, the call came through from Minneapolis. I was told about the storm. I was also told that the adjustment had been approved and they were offering me the position of head basketball coach at the University of Minnesota, the job that I really wanted. Had I been able to terminate my agreement with UCLA in an honorable fashion, I would have done so immediately. But I had given my word just a few minutes before. If fate had not intervened, I would never have gone to UCLA. But my dad's little set of threes served me well. Don't whine, don't complain, don't make excuses. I resolved to work hard and do the best job I was capable of, even when I discovered upon arriving at UCLA that I wasn't actually working for the university, but rather for the associated students. The president of the student body was actually my boss. I also believed that things turn out best for those who make the best of the way things turn out. Five More Puzzlers why is it so hard for so many to realize that winners are usually the ones who work harder, work longer, and as a result, perform better? Why are there so many who want to build up the weak by tearing down the strong? Why is it that so many non-attainers are quick to criticize, question, and belittle the attainers? Why is it so hard for us to understand that we cannot antagonize and positively influence at the same time? Why is it so much easier to complain about the things we do not have than to make the most of and appreciate the things we do have? Young folks, old folks. Youth is a time of impatience. Young people can't understand why the problems of society can't be solved right now. They haven't lived long enough to fully understand human nature and lack the patience that eventually brings an understanding of the relatively slow nature of change. On the other hand, older people often become set in their ways, fear change, and accept problems that should be addressed and resolved. The young must remember that all good and worthwhile things take time, and that is exactly as it should be. Their elders must remember that although not all change is progress, all progress is the result of change and to resist or fear change is often to get in the way of progress. The divide between the young and the old could be greatly lessened by more mutual trust and understanding of the other fellow. Of course, the responsibility to initiate trust falls on those with more maturity. It is important because I believe when we are out of sympathy with the young, our work in this world is over. Six ways to bring out the best in people. 1. 
Keep courtesy and consideration for others foremost in your mind, at home and away. 2. Try to have fun without trying to be funny. 3. While you can't control what happens to you, you can control how you react. Make good manners an automatic reaction. 4. Seek individual opportunities to offer a genuine compliment. 5. Remember that sincerity, optimism, and enthusiasm are more welcome than sarcasm, pessimism, and laziness. 6. Laugh with others, never at them. Losing Nelly, Peace of Mind When Socrates was in prison, facing imminent and unjust death, his jailers, some of the cruelest men in the land, mocked him and asked, Why do you not prepare yourself for death? He looked at the jailers and replied, I have prepared for death all of my life by the life I lived. Socrates was at peace with himself. My own faith gave me more peace with myself. The most difficult thing I have ever experienced was losing Nellie 13 years ago. We were sweethearts for almost 60 years and married for 53 years. Certain things happen, and you must have faith that there is a reason for them. My faith and my family sustained me. And now, like Socrates, I have no fear of death. When it comes, I can be with her again. I appreciate this poem, Lucy, by William Wordsworth. She dwelt among the untrodden ways beside the springs of Dove, a maid of whom there were none to please and very few to love, a violet by a mossy stone half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one was shining in the sky. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be, but she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. William Wordsworth Death is something that holds no fear for me any longer. I'm at peace. God's Hall of Fame This crowd on earth they soon forget the heroes of the past. They cheer like mad until you fall, and that's how long you last. But God does not forget, and in his hall of fame, by just believing in his Son, inscribed, you'll find your name. I tell you, friends, I would not trade my name, however small inscribed up there beyond the stars in that celestial hall, for any famous name on earth or glory that they share. I'd rather be an unknown here and have my name up there. Part 2. Success, Achievement, Competition Try not to become a man of success, but rather try to become a man of value. Albert Einstein Mr. Webster's Definition of Success Mr. Webster defines success as the accumulation of material possessions or the attainment of a position of power, prestige, or perhaps fame. I certainly think those things can be indicative of success, but they are not necessarily success in themselves. I know many eminently successful people who never made a lot of money and never gained any high position or recognition. They simply and quietly raised a family, worked hard, and had a job that allowed them to take care of their family, though not usually in a lavish style. These individuals and their families are a big success by my definition. 
Mr. Webster neglects to mention those folks in his book. My dad, Joshua, had great influence on my own personal definition of success, and it has little to do with fortune or fame. Although I probably didn't really understand it at the time, one of the things he tried to get across to me was that I should never try to be better than someone else. Then he always added, But Johnny, never cease trying to be the best you can be. That is under your control. The other isn't. You have little say over how big or how strong or how smart or rich someone else may be. You do have, at least you should have, control of yourself and the effort you give toward bringing out your best in whatever you're doing. This effort must be total, and when it is, I believe you have achieved personal success. The concept that success is mine when I work my hardest to become my best and that I alone determine whether I do so became central to my life and affected me in a most profound manner. Try your hardest in all ways and you are a success, period. Do less than that and you have failed to one degree or another. I believe this so strongly and I have practiced it as best I could throughout these many years. Preparation is the prize. Cervantes wrote, The journey is better than the inn. He is right, and that is why I derived my greatest satisfaction out of the preparation, the journey, day after day, week after week, year after year. Your journey is the important thing. A score, a trophy, a ribbon is simply the inn. Thus, there were many, many games that gave me as much pleasure as any of the ten national championship games we won, simply because we prepared fully and played near our highest level of ability. The so-called importance of a particular game didn't necessarily add to the satisfaction I felt in preparing for the contest. It was the journey I prized above all else. A successful journey is the destination. You know where you'd like to go, whether it's to a national championship in basketball or a particular goal in your business or life. You must also realize that this goal will be simply a byproduct of all the hard work and good thinking you do along the way, your preparation. The preparation is where success is truly found. Set your compass in a chosen direction and then focus your attention and efforts completely on the journey of preparation. A successful journey becomes your destination and is where your real accomplishment lies. For example, let's say Mr. Grigsby owns a company that manufactures shoes. I believe shoes are simply a byproduct for his company. Their real product is the teamwork of people within the company, along with the manufacturing plant and other elements of the business that the leader, Mr. Grigsby, has brought together. How his company's people work as a team is the product. Shoes are a byproduct. Likewise, in my coaching, I informed every player who came under my supervision that the outcome of a game was simply a byproduct of the effort we made to prepare. They understood our destination was a successful journey, namely total, complete, and detailed preparation. Too often we neglect our journey in our eagerness or anxiety about reaching the goal. If Mr. Grigsby and his team do this, they will manufacture poorly made shoes. If we had done this, UCLA would never have won national championships. If you do it in your life or profession, you will find yourself discontent and operating well below your level of competency.
Failures and Mistakes I had mistakes, plenty, but I had no failures. We may not have won a championship every year, we may have lost games, but we had no failures. You never fail if you know in your heart that you did the best of which you are capable. I did my best. That is all I could do. Are you going to make mistakes? Of course. But it is not failure if you make the full effort. I told my players many times, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. If you prepare properly, you may be outscored, but you will never lose. I wanted our players to believe that to their very souls because I know it is the truth. You always win when you make the full effort to do the best of which you're capable. I also know that only one person on earth knows if you made your best effort. Not your coach, not your employer, not your husband or wife, boyfriend or girlfriend, brother or sister. The only person who knows is you. You can fool everyone else. Blaming Others You can make mistakes, but you aren't a failure until you start blaming others for those mistakes. When you blame others, you're trying to excuse yourself. When you make excuses, you can't properly evaluate yourself. Without proper self-evaluation, failure is inevitable. Players 50 years ago wanted to win just as much as players today. Foot soldiers a thousand years ago wanted to win the battle as much as combat troops today. Athletes today have no greater desire to win than athletes at the first Olympic Games. The desire then and now is the same. The difference is that everybody worries about it more today because of the media and the attention they give to the question of who's winning and who's losing. Did I win? Did I lose? Those are the wrong questions. The correct question is, did I make my best effort? That's what matters. The rest of it just gets in the way. In classical times, the courageous struggle for a noble cause was considered success in itself. Sadly, that ideal has been forgotten but it is well worth remembering. The Infection of Success You become infected with success when you think that your past is going to have an impact on your future. Oh, it might have an effect on the opposition, in that your success may affect their thinking. Fine, but do not let it affect what you do. Learn from the past. Don't live in the past. The infection of success can lead you to live in the past. To believe that what happened before is automatically going to happen again, when that occurs, you have been infected by success. You have control only over the present, right now. Let me prove it to you. I ask you to do this. Change the past, even the smallest, most incidental, least important thing that happened in the past. Go ahead and show that you can change it. The future? Again, I ask you, change right now something in the future, can you? Of course not. Your control exists now, in the present, right here. How you respond to past success can be damaging if you let it infect your thinking, if you let it diminish your preparation in the present for the future. Then you've been infected by success. Underdogs I've never gone into a game thinking we were going to lose. Never. Even though there have been games where the experts said there was no way we could win. Even if we were big underdogs, I always felt anything could happen. Often enough, I was right. That's also why I never assumed we were going to win. The Opinion of Others 
Do not become too concerned about what others may think of you. Be very concerned about what you think of yourself. Too often we care more about a stranger's opinion of us than our own. Your opinion of yourself begins on the inside with your character. What do you believe in, and are you willing to stand up for it despite what others may think or say? It's what my dad meant when he said, Be true to yourself. This comes first, then the opinion of others. Pressure The only pressure that amounts to a hill of beans is the pressure you put on yourself. If you're going to try to live up to expectations put on you by the media, parents, fans, your employer, or whatever else there may be, it's going to affect you adversely because it brings on worry and anxiety. I think that is the tendency of people who choke under pressure. They're thinking about living up to the expectations of everybody else instead of just doing their job the best they can. Hindsight. You can always look back and see where you might have done something differently change this or that. If you can learn something, fine, but never second-guess yourself. It's wasted effort. If I put a substitution in during a game at UCLA and he immediately makes a mistake, even a stupid mistake, was my decision wrong? Absolutely not. Just didn't work out. That was the decision I made based on past experience and without emotionalism. I made it with a reason, but it just didn't work out. Things don't always work out. It's also true in life. Does worrying about it, complaining about it, change it? Nope, just waste your time. And if you complain about it to other people, you're also wasting their time. Nothing is gained by wasting all of that time. The Realistic Optimist I believe one of my strengths is my ability to keep negative thoughts out. I am an optimist. I believe this results from the fact that I set realistic goals, ones that are difficult to achieve, but within reach. You might say, I'm a realistic optimist. Goals should be difficult to achieve because those achieved with little effort are seldom appreciated, give little personal satisfaction, and are often not very worthwhile. However, if you set goals that are so idealistic there's no possibility of reaching them, you will eventually become discouraged and quit. They become counterproductive. Be a realistic optimist. Details create success. Question. How can I become an optimist? Answer. Proper preparation and attention to details. I believe in the basics. Attention to and perfection of tiny details that might commonly be overlooked. They may seem trivial, perhaps even laughable to those who don't understand, but they aren't. They are fundamental to your progress in basketball, business, and life. They are the difference between champions and near champions. For example, at the first squad meeting each season held two weeks before our first actual practice, I personally demonstrated how I wanted players to put on their socks each and every time. Carefully roll the socks down over the toes, ball of the foot, arch, and around the heel, then pull the sock up snug so there will be no wrinkles of any kind. I would then have the players carefully check with their fingers for any folds or creases in the sock, starting at the toes and sliding the hand along the side of and under the foot, smoothing the sock out as the fingers passed over it. I paid special attention to the heel, because that is where the wrinkles are most likely. I would watch as the player smoothed the sock under and along the back of the heel. I wanted it done conscientiously, 
not quickly or casually. I wanted absolutely no folds, wrinkles, or creases of any kind on the sock. Then we would proceed to the other foot and do the same. I would demonstrate for the players and then have the players demonstrate for me. This may seem like a nuisance, trivial, but I had a very practical reason for being meticulous about this. Wrinkles, folds, and creases can cause blisters. Blisters interfere with performance during practice and games. Since there was a way to reduce blisters, something the player and I could control, it was our responsibility to do it. Otherwise, we would not be doing everything possible to prepare in the best way. When a player came to UCLA, I didn't ask him what size shoe he wore. We measured his foot. Why? Because when children are growing up, parents buy shoes bigger than their feet, knowing they are growing fast. The youngster might think he's a size 14 when he's actually a size 13. Shoes that are a little too big let the foot slide around. This can cause a blister, especially if there's also a fold in the player's sock. I wanted the socks to lie smooth and the shoes to fit correctly. Next, I'd instruct the player on how to lace and tie his shoes precisely. Lace snugly, putting some pressure on each eyelet, and then double-tie each shoe so it won't come undone during a practice or a game. An untied shoe is never good, but it can be particularly troublesome if it happens during performance. It was something under our control that we could prevent, and so we did. I insisted that hair be short. Did it have anything to do with style? No. Long hair flies around and can interfere with vision, and the perspiration on longer hair may get in eyes or on the hands. I wanted no interference with the player's vision or ball handling. In addition, practices were often held in the evening, and when players went outside after practice, they were susceptible to catching a cold if their hair was wet. Shorter hair is easier to dry. I didn't want to have a player's head cold interfere with his practice. Players understood my thinking, but that didn't prevent them from testing me, sometimes in a kidding way. Coach, one of them asked, how about a mustache? That won't interfere with my ball handling or vision. Well, of course, the player was correct. I knew a mustache, properly trimmed and of appropriate length, would be no problem. I also knew human nature, especially as it applied to youngsters. The short, trimmed mustache would be followed by the handlebar mustache or more. I had no desire to become a mustache inspector as part of my daily responsibility. Thus, no mustaches at all. These seemingly trivial matters taken together and added to many, many other so-called trivial matters, build into something very big, namely your success. You will find that success and attention to details, the smallest details, usually go hand in hand in basketball and elsewhere in your life. When you see a successful individual, a champion, a winner, you can be very sure that you are looking at an individual who pays great attention to the perfection of minor details. Details create success. Question. How can I become an optimist? Answer. Proper preparation and attention to details. I believe in the basics. Attention to and perfection of tiny details that might commonly be overlooked. They may seem trivial, perhaps even laughable to those who don't understand, but they aren't. They are fundamental to your progress in basketball, business, and life. They are the difference between champions and near-champions. These seemingly trivial matters, 
taken together and added to many, many other so-called trivial matters, build into something very big, namely your success. You will find that success and attention to details, the smallest details, usually go hand in hand in basketball and elsewhere in your life. When you see a successful individual, a champion, a winner, you can be very sure that you are looking at an individual who pays great attention to the perfection of minor details. Hopes and Dreams Having a dream is often like hoping for something. It's easy to let our dreams and our hopes get away from reality. Youngsters are told, think big, anything is possible. I would never go that strong. I want them to think positively, but when you think big, you often start thinking too big, and I believe that can be very dangerous. Wanting an unattainable goal will eventually produce a feeling of, what's the use? That feeling can carry over into other areas. This is bad. A youngster may dream of being seven feet tall. Hoping for something of that nature is not productive. We should keep our dreams within the realm of possibility, difficult but possible, and make every effort to achieve them. I have often been asked when I first started dreaming about winning a national championship. Was it at Indiana State Teachers College or after I arrived at UCLA? Perhaps while I was a college player? I never dreamed about winning a national championship. It happened before I even thought it was possible. What I was dreaming about each year, if you want to call it that, was trying to produce the best basketball team we could be. My thoughts were directed toward preparation, our journey, not the results of the effort, such as winning national championships. That would simply have shifted my attention to the wrong area, hoping for something out of my control. Hoping doesn't make it happen. Mix idealism with realism and hard work. This will often bring much more than you could ever hope for. Paying the price. People usually know what they should do to get what they want. They just won't do it. They won't pay the price. Understand, there is a price to be paid for achieving anything of significance. You must be willing to pay the price. The Worthy Opponent Can there be any great enjoyment or satisfaction in doing what everybody else can do? What joy can be derived in sports from overcoming someone who is not as capable as you are? But there is great joy and satisfaction in competing against an opponent who forces you to dig deep and produce your best. That is the only way to get real joy out of the competition itself. The worthy opponent brings out the very best in you. This is thrilling. Follow your bliss? I hear the saying, follow your bliss, now and then. That's probably good advice, unless you pick something that's not so good to be your bliss. I think Timothy Leary followed his bliss. <laughs> you got to be careful what your bliss is. Comparisons. We tend to compare ourselves to others. And in what way? We compare ourselves to others who have more things in a material sort of way. Don't compare yourself with someone else in this manner. You have no control over his or her material things. A worthwhile goal. The goal, I believe, is important, is the goal of making the most of your abilities. That goal is within your reach. If pursuing material things becomes your only goal, you will fail in so many other ways. Besides, in time, all material things go away. Tall versus tall. I told my athletes in basketball 
I don't care if you are tall, but I do care if you play tall. It's just another way of saying that I judged them by the level of effort they gave to the team's journey. That's the standard of measurement I used. I could also have told them, show me what you can do, don't tell me what you can do. Too often the big talkers are the little doers. The main ingredient of stardom. No UCLA basketball player's number was retired while I was coach. Later on, certain numbers were retired, such as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's number 33 and Bill Walton's number 32. I was against it in both cases and any other case, not because Kareem and Bill weren't outstanding players, but because other fellows who played on our team also wore those numbers. Some of those other players gave me close to everything they had, even though they aren't as famous and perhaps didn't have the natural gifts Kareem and Bill were blessed with. For example, Willie Knowles wore number 33 while he was a member of our team. He worked hard, he played hard, he was an All-American. Doesn't he have some claim to the number 33? The jersey and the number on it never belong to just one single player, no matter how great or how big a star that particular player is. It goes against the whole concept of what a team is. The team is the star, never an individual player. Peace of mind. Without peace of mind, what do you have? Many people go through life unhappy with what they have regardless of how much they have. No matter how much they accumulate, they never achieve peace of mind because they want more. It never ends for them, and they are forever unhappy. Usually it's a result of comparing themselves to others, of trying to keep up with the Joneses. Did I find peace of mind by winning a national championship in basketball in 1964? Then a second, a third, a fourth, and so on? No. I had my peace of mind as a coach long before a national championship was ever won. Circle what you are. Take a moment and draw a circle around the following personal characteristics that you possess. Confidence, poise, imagination, initiative, tolerance, humility, love, cheerfulness, faith, enthusiasm, courage, honesty, serenity. I hope you circled them all because all are within each of us. It is simply up to us to bring them out. The biggest change of all. Perhaps you fret and think you can't make a difference in the way things are. Wrong. You can make the biggest difference of all. You can change yourself. And when you do that, you become a very powerful and important force, namely a good role model. I believe you can do more good by being good than in any other way. Personal glory is secondary. The recognition I received at UCLA was fine, but mainly I was happy for the teams and the youngsters on those teams. The recognition I received was not all that important. Recognition appeals to the ego, but it is a secondary consideration and is often counterproductive. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy a little attention as much as the next person because I recall a time when there was very little. When I was discharged from the service in January of 1946, I resumed a position teaching English in South Bend, Indiana, where I had been before enlisting in 1942. 
While teaching and coaching there, I was invited to be the featured keynote speaker at a ceremony in neighboring Elkhart, Indiana, to honor those deserving special recognition for that particular school year academically in sports and otherwise. Needless to say, I was greatly flattered that they considered me important enough to be the main speaker at this big event. I gave what I considered to be a good and inspirational speech. In 1971, they remembered my appearance with a brief item in the retrospective section of the Elkhart Truth, the local newspaper. The item for 25 years ago today read as follows. Elkhart school officials announced today that John R. Wooden, English teacher, coach from South Bend Central High School, will be the principal speaker at their recognition dinner, although they had hoped to get a prominent person. So... A little recognition for one's effort is nice. It's when you start to let it affect your behavior and especially your preparation that you have let it go to your head. Individual Honors From an individual standpoint, I am very proud of the medal I received when I graduated from Purdue University as an athlete with an excellent grade point average. That I did, not the team, me. I am proud of that. And it is one of the reasons I have always stressed education to young people, particularly those who came under my supervision as coach. I know the importance of getting an education. I know that its benefits last a lifetime. I am also very proud of the fact that I received the Bellamine Medal because no one in the sports world had ever been given it before. And more so because Mother Teresa, a woman for whom I have the greatest respect in the world, had also been a recipient of that medal. For me to receive that same medal, goodness gracious sakes, I am proud of that. However, individual recognition, praise, can be a dangerous commodity. It is given for what was done in the past and could take your mind off what you must do to prepare for the future. It is best not to drink too deeply from a cup full of fame. It can be very intoxicating, and intoxicated people often do foolish things. Quick to Judge Why is it that those who are the quickest to judge are often those in possession of the fewest facts? Overachievers No one is an overachiever. How can you rise above your level of competency? We're all underachievers to different degrees. You may hear someone say that a certain individual gave 110%. How can that be? You can only give what you have, and you have only 100%. I preferred to judge individuals on the basis of how close they came to giving 100%, knowing they would never reach perfection, and they would certainly never reach 110% of perfection. But perhaps they would operate near their level of competency when their greatest skill was needed. Eight Suggestions for Succeeding 1. Fear no opponent. Respect every opponent. 2. Remember, it's the perfection of the smallest details that make big things happen. 3. Keep in mind that hustle makes up for many a mistake. 4. Be more interested in character than reputation. 5. Be quick, but don't hurry. 6. Understand that the harder you work, the more luck you will have. 7. Know that valid self-analysis is crucial for improvement. 8. Remember that there is no substitute for hard work and careful planning. 
Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Beating yourself. The very worst thing you can do is to beat yourself. By that I mean not function to your level of competency because you didn't put out your full effort in all ways. Maybe you stayed out too late last night. Maybe you were too concerned with individual statistics. Maybe you thought you could just turn it on without proper preparation. Maybe you did some other things that were counterproductive, like being impatient. In other words, you beat yourself. The other guy didn't have to beat you. Now you've got something worth being ashamed of. Winners make the most mistakes. My coach at Purdue, Piggy Lambert, constantly reminded us, the team that makes the most mistakes will probably win. That may sound a bit odd, but there is a great deal of truth in it. The doer makes mistakes. Coach Lambert taught me that mistakes come from doing, but so does success. The individual who is mistake-free is also probably sitting around doing nothing, and that's a very big mistake. Cashing in on fame. Many, many people advertise products simply because they are paid to do so. I'm not critical of those who are taking money for, say, promoting a particular brand of athletic shoe. That's their business. I just would not feel comfortable telling someone to use something simply because I'm being paid to say it. It doesn't seem to be an appropriate way to use one's recognition. If I don't feel comfortable doing it, then I'm not going to do it, regardless of how much money they want to pay me. And I've been offered considerable sums over the years to do just that. I may not have their money, but I do have my peace of mind. Characteristics of a team player We all fit into different niches. Each of us must make the effort to contribute to the best of our ability according to our own individual talents. And then we put all the individual talents together for the highest good of the group. Thus, I valued a player who cared for others and could lose himself in the group for the good of the group. I believe that quality makes for an outstanding player. It is also why the best players don't always make the best team. I mean by this that a gifted player, or players who are not team players, will ultimately hurt the team, whether it revolves around basketball or business. Understanding that the good of the group comes first is fundamental to being a highly productive member of a team. All-time best starting five. One, industriousness. Two, enthusiasm. Three, condition, mental, moral, and physical. Four, fundamentals. Five, team spirit. A good sixth player on the bench is attention to details. Why teams fail. No matter how great your product, if your sales department doesn't produce, you won't get the results you want. Different departments must all function well for the company to succeed. Different individuals must also function well for the departments to succeed. It takes all doing their best. I told players at UCLA that we as a team are like a powerful car. Maybe a Bill Walton or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Michael Jordan is the big engine, but if one wheel is flat, we're going no place. And if we have brand new tires but the lug nuts are missing, the wheels come off. What good is the powerful engine now? It's no good at all. A lug nut may seem like a little thing, but it's not. There's a role that each and every one of us must play. We may aspire to what we consider to be a larger role or a more important role, but we cannot achieve that until we show that we are able to fulfill the role we are assigned. It's these little things 
that make the big things happen. The big engine is not going to work unless the little things are being done properly. Remember that Michael Jordan was with the Chicago Bulls for several years before he ever played in a championship game. Was he talented? Of course he was. But that powerful engine called Air Jordan was in a car with some parts that were not functioning properly. Of course, when I told the players about their roles and the car with the powerful engine, new tires, and tight lug nuts, I also reminded them the car needed a driver behind the wheel, or it would just go around in circles or smash into a tree. I told them the driver was me. Orange peels, pride, and productivity. I frequently received letters from custodians after we played an away game telling me our basketball team had left the locker room neater and cleaner than anyone who had visited during the year. The towels were put in bins, soap was picked up off the shower floor, and so forth. The locker rooms were clean when we departed because I asked the players to pick up after themselves. I believe this is just common courtesy. Somebody's going to have to clean it up, and I see no reason why it shouldn't be the person who messed it up. Our managers and custodians, the players' servants? In basketball, we often have orange slices or gum at the half. I see no reason why you should throw those orange peels or gum wrappers carelessly on the floor. There are receptacles for that. Again, it's just common courtesy. As with many of the rules I had, there are other less obvious but equally important reasons for insisting on them. In this case, it goes to the image of the team, both our self-image and the image others have of us. I think neatness and courtesy make you feel good about yourself. I believe individuals who feel good about themselves are more productive. For this same reason, I asked players even during practice to keep shirts tucked in and socks pulled up. I believe this encourages teamwork and team unity. It establishes a spirit of togetherness that helps mold the team into a solo unit. I really believe that. In fact, perhaps I should say, I know it. I've seen it work. Kareem's Selflessness I wanted each player to be intently interested in developing his own personal abilities as close to perfection as he could, while knowing that perfection is impossible. Players like Bill Walton and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar may have more to give in some areas thanks to their God-given gifts. My job was to get them to focus those individual abilities on the welfare of the group as a whole. This was often a formidable challenge for me because the player might have to sacrifice personally for the group as a whole to do better. I believe, for example, I could have made Kareem the greatest scorer in college history. I could have done that by developing the team around that ability of his. Would we have won three national championships while he was at UCLA? Never. Besides, he wouldn't have wanted that. He was a very unselfish player, best kind of player, one who would put the welfare of the team ahead of his own personal glory. Kareem took his great ability to score and sublimated it for the greater good of the team. He was willing to do that. But if either he or I had allowed that scoring ability to dominate, we would have cut down on the contributions of others to the detriment of the team. Kareem put the team ahead of himself. Mr. Charles Barkley is a tremendous athlete, but he may put self before team. He wants to be with a team that can win a championship, but when he gets to that team, he seems more interested in how he does individually than how the team does. Mr. Dennis Rodman seemed to share that attitude until he found direction from Coach Phil Jackson. The result? When Mr. Rodman directed all his energies to the good of the Chicago Bulls, he became part of a great national championship basketball team. 
Kareem didn't need direction in this area. He was instinctively the best kind of player, a team player. Miracles. In looking forward, I never expected miracles to happen. Instead, I expected the slow, steady progress that comes with industry and patience. Miracles were welcome, of course. I just felt more comfortable focusing on that over which I had some degree of control. Miracles were under someone else's control. Nine Promises That Can Bring Happiness 1. Promise yourself that you will talk health, happiness, and prosperity as often as possible. 2. Promise yourself to make all your friends know there is something in them that is special and that you value. 3. Promise to think only of the best, to work only for the best, and to expect only the best in yourself and others. 4. Promise to be just as enthusiastic about the success of others as you are about your own. 5. Promise yourself to be so strong that nothing can disturb your peace of mind. 6. Promise to forget the mistakes of the past and press on to greater achievements in the future. 7. Promise to wear a cheerful appearance at all times and give every person you meet a smile. 8. Promise to give so much time to improving yourself that you have no time to criticize others. 9. Promise to be too large for worry, too noble for anger, too strong for fear, and too happy to permit trouble to press on you. Losing and Winning Long before any championships were ever won at UCLA, I came to understand that losing is only temporary and not all-encompassing. You must simply study it, learn from it, and try hard not to lose the same way again. Then you must have the self-control to forget about it. I've also learned that winning games, titles, and championships isn't all it's cracked up to be, and that getting there, the journey, is a lot more than it's cracked up to be. Please understand that I wanted to win every single game I ever played in or coached. Absolutely. I wanted to win. But I understood that ultimately the winning or losing may not be under my control. What was under my control was how I prepared myself and our team. I judged my success, my winning, on that. It just made more sense. I felt if we prepared fully, we would do just fine. If we won, great, frosting on the cake. But at no time did I consider winning to be the cake. Sage Advice Many years ago, a friend told me that the best thing a coach can do is to always come close. As soon as you win it all, everybody expects it again. And when you don't win it all again, you're considered a loser. If you just come close, everybody gets to say, just wait until next year. Hopes stay high but expectations don't become extreme. My friend meant it in a kidding way, but there is some truth to his words. In 1974, we got to the Final Four once again and could have won our eighth national championship in a row. However, we lost to North Carolina State, the eventual champion, in the semifinals, 80-77, in a double overtime. Our championship streak was stopped at seven in a row. Twelve months later, on March 29, 1975, we came back and won the national championship, our 10th overall, by defeating Kentucky, 92-85, in the finals. As we stood waiting for the award ceremony to begin in the San Diego Sports Arena, a longtime UCLA booster rushed up to my side and grabbed my arm. 
As he began wildly shaking my hand, he shouted in my ear, We did it! We did it! You let us down last year, coach, but we got him this year. A few minutes earlier, we had won the national championship, and all he could think to say was that this was an improvement over how we had let him down the previous year when we had only gotten to the semis. His comments didn't upset me. They actually amused me a little bit because they reflected what my friend had said about when you win at all. The more successful you are, the higher and higher the expectations become, the more suspicious people are of you, and the more criticism you receive. It goes back to focusing on the journey rather than the destination. I was just as satisfied with my efforts in the 14 years before we won a national championship as I was the final 12 years when we captured 10 championships. In fact, and you may have trouble accepting this, I believe we were more successful in some years when we didn't win a championship than in some years when we did. Those on the outside had a higher level of satisfaction when we won championships, but I didn't. I knew that each of the first 14 years I made the maximum effort to do the best I was capable of. My effort in the worst year was exactly the same as in a championship year. How the media, alumni, or fans viewed the results of that effort was their concern, not mine. Fame. Here's what I found upon becoming well-known. You're not anything different from what you were before. At least, you shouldn't be. Fame is just something other people perceive you to be. You're no different. You're still you. It's their illusion. I didn't want it to become my illusion. On talent. Many athletes have tremendous God-given gifts, but they don't focus on the development of those gifts. Who are these individuals? You've never heard of them, and you never will. It's true in sports, and it's true everywhere in life. Hard work is the difference. Very hard work. Unhappiness today. It is my observation that the primary cause of unhappiness for most people is simply wanting too much, expecting too much materially, chasing the dollar, overemphasizing the material things. When they don't arrive, unhappiness does. Make the most of what you've got. When I came out to UCLA from Indiana State Teachers College in 1948, I had been led to believe we'd soon have an adequate place to practice and play our games. However, that did not occur for almost 17 years. During that time, I conducted UCLA basketball practices in a crowded, poorly lit, and badly ventilated gym on the third floor of the men's gymnasium building. Much of the time, there was wrestling practice at one end, a trampoline on the side with athletes bouncing up and down, and gymnastics practice on the other side. The gym was known as the B.O. barn because of the odor when it was busy. In addition to all of this commotion, cheerleaders and leotards often practiced alongside the court. Of course, that brought on some additional distractions. We had no private locker rooms and no private showers. Players climbed three flights of stairs to a gym that had just two baskets amidst all of the hubbub. For 16 years, I helped our managers to sweep and mop the floor every day before practice because of the dust stirred up from the other activities. These were hardship conditions, not only for the basketball team, but for the wrestling and gymnastics team members and coaches as well. You could have written a long list of excuses why UCLA shouldn't have been able to develop a good basketball team there. Nevertheless, the B.O. barn 
was where we built teams that won national championships in 1964 and 1965. You must take what is available and make the very most of it. Is my Ford better than your Cadillac? Preparing UCLA for a basketball game with Louisville or Arizona or Duke or Michigan, I would tell my players, we can't control what those other fellows do to get ready. We can only control what we do to get ready. So let's do our very best in that regard and hope that will be good enough, yes, to outscore them. But let's not worry about that. Instead, let's worry about our own preparation. Let's say I want to build a car, maybe a Ford or a Chevrolet or a Plymouth. I want to build it the best I can possibly build it. Will it be better than a Cadillac or a Mercedes? That's irrelevant. If I'm building a Ford, I simply want to build the very best Ford I can build. That's all I can do to come close to my level of competency, not somebody else's. I have nothing to do with theirs, only mine. To worry about whether what I'm building is going to be better than what somebody else is building elsewhere is to worry needlessly. I believe that if I'm worried about what's going on outside, it will detract from my preparation inside. My concern, my focus, my total effort should be on building the very best Ford I can build. I did that in coaching high school teams and in coaching college teams. My focus was on making that team, that group of individuals, the best they were capable of becoming, whether it was a Ford or a Cadillac. Some years I understood we were building a Ford. Other years I felt we were building a Cadillac. The effort put forth in all years was the same, total. And I was just as proud of our well-built Fords as I was of our well-built Cadillacs. Recognizing a champion. You are in the presence of a true competitor when you observe that he or she is indeed getting the most joy out of the most difficult circumstances. The real competitors love a tough situation. That's when they focus better and function better. At moments of maximum pressure, they want the ball. You begin to see it as time goes by. Not immediately, but gradually you see that real competitors relish the challenge. The bigger, the better. The more difficult the game, the more they improve. True competitors derive their greatest pleasure out of playing against the very best opponents, even though they may be outscored. The difficult challenge provides the rare opportunity to be their best. Often, great competitors don't quite have the physical skills of more gifted players, but they get more out of what they have at moments of great pressure. Thus, I base my judgment on not just what they had, but how they used it. To what extent did they attempt to bring forth their abilities? To what extent did they accomplish that under maximum pressure? This is how I identified competitors who had greatness within. Corporate Competitors The qualities I observe in successful athletes are common among people who enjoy success in business. Both love the battle, the journey, the challenge. Both of them consider the final outcome a byproduct. Both have what it takes to get there and get fired up when the challenge is formidable. They know it presents the potential for greatness and provides the greatest satisfaction. Being too competitive. Competitiveness must be focused exclusively on the process of what you are doing rather than the result of that effort, the so-called winning or losing. Otherwise, you may lose self-control and become tight emotionally, mentally, and physically. I think someone who is too competitive as an individual is overly worried about the final score. Therefore, I never mentioned winning or victory to my players. I never referred to beating an opponent. Instead, I constantly urge them to strive for the self-satisfaction that always comes from knowing 
You did the best you could to become the best of which you were capable. That's what I wanted, the total effort. That was the measurement I used, never the final score. Is winning the only thing? Mr. Vince Lombardi is supposed to have said, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Well, if he said that, I disagree. I believe making the total effort is everything. And that's all I ever wanted and all I ever asked from myself or my players. It's all you should ever ask for or expect. Understand that you won't actually ever become the best of which you are capable. That's perfection. We can't obtain perfection as I understand it. But we can work and work hard toward obtaining it. If you do that, you will never lose in sports or in life. Ego and Arrogance Everyone has a certain amount of ego, but you must keep that ego under control. Ego is feeling confident and important, knowing you can do the job. But if you get to feeling that you are too important, that you're indispensable, or that you can do the job without real effort and hard work, without the correct preparation, that's arrogance. Arrogance is weakness. That's why I like this poem. Sometime when you're feeling important, sometime when your ego's in bloom, sometime when you take it for granted you're the best qualified in the room, sometime when you feel that your going would leave an unfillable hole, just follow this simple instruction and see how it humbles your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to the wrist, pull it out, and the hole that's remaining is the measure of how you'll be missed. You may splash all you please when you enter. You can stir up the water galore, but stop and you'll find in a minute that it looks quite the same as before. The moral in this quaint example is to do just the best that you can. Be proud of yourself, but remember, there is no indispensable man. Ogden Nash Work creates luck. People have expressed amazement over the fact that between 1967 and 1973, UCLA won seven consecutive national championships. This championship streak began shortly after we moved into modern Pauley Pavilion. More amazing to me is that earlier, UCLA won two national championships in 1964 and 1965 without a home court and under the hardship conditions I have described in the men's gymnasium building. To this day, I believe that was more difficult than winning seven championships in a row after we moved to Pauley Pavilion. But because of those first two hard-earned national titles, something unexpected occurred that had a significant impact on the future of our basketball program. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who at that time still went by the name Louis Alcindor, saw us play in the finals of the national championships and decided to visit our campus before deciding which college to attend. Because of Kareem's interest, Athletic Director J.D. Morgan expedited the construction of Pauley Pavilion so that it would be ready if he chose to attend UCLA in the fall of 1965. With the assurance that he would be practicing and playing in a good facility and the knowledge that UCLA had outstanding academics, Kareem chose to join us. But without the hard work under extremely difficult conditions at the B.O. barn that led to the first two national championships, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would never have seen us play nor thought of coming to our school. And without his interest in joining us, Pauley Pavilion would have taken much longer to complete. All of this luck did not come from out of the blue. 
some very hard work under very tough conditions in the preceding years produced this unexpected good fortune. Have you noticed in your life how often that seems to occur? B.O. Barnes' Unexpected Reward For my first three years at UCLA, we played our home games in the B.O. Barn itself. Custodians would set up bleachers that seated about 2,100 until the fire department moved in and cut it down to 1,100. This forced us to play our home games elsewhere. So for almost 14 years, we traveled around playing those games at Santa Monica City College, Venice High School, Long Beach City College, Long Beach Auditorium, Pan Pacific Auditorium, and elsewhere. Because of our lack of a real home court, an unanticipated benefit occurred. Our team became a much stronger road team because we were virtually on the road all of the time. I have little doubt this was of considerable advantage to us when we played opponents on their home courts. We were used to the disruption of travel and were more comfortable in foreign environments. This was particularly advantageous at tournament time. Adversity often produces the unexpected opportunity. Look for it, appreciate and utilize it. This is difficult to do if you're feeling sorry for yourself because you're faced with the adversity. Character versus character. A true athlete should have character, not be a character. A character tries to attract attention to himself. He is too interested in showing off and trying to get noticed. Being an individual is different. Bill Walton was an individual, but he was as fine a team player as you'd want. He put the welfare of the team ahead of personal glory. Some believe that sports build character. I believe that sports reveal character. I see too many players who are characters today. I like a player with character. A player like Bill or Kareem. Right from wrong. Bill Walton came to my office one afternoon at Pauley Pavilion with a serious question for me. His knees had been causing him increasing pain over the last several months, to a point where it was obvious to anyone watching him play that just running the length of the court hurt him badly. Coach, he said, I've heard that smoking marijuana will reduce the pain in my knees. Is it okay with you if I use it? I looked up from my desk and replied, Bill, I haven't heard that it is a pain reliever, but I have heard that it is illegal. Tricks of the Trade If you spend too much time learning the tricks of the trade, you may not learn the trade. There are no shortcuts. If you're working on finding a shortcut the easy way, you're not working hard enough on the fundamentals. You may get away with it for a spell, but there is no substitute for the basics. And the first basic is good, old-fashioned, hard work. Act quickly, but don't hurry. When you hurry, you tend to make mistakes. On the other hand, if you can't execute quickly, you may be too late to accomplish your task. It's a delicate but crucial balance. Your own standard of success. Don't measure yourself by what you've accomplished, but rather by what you should have accomplished with your abilities. This goes right back to my definition of success. Make the effort to do the best of which you are capable. Can anyone possibly do more than that? Have you ever heard of Conrad Burke or Doug McIntosh? Probably not, but they were as successful as any players I ever coached at UCLA or anywhere else, including those who went on to play professional basketball. These two players came close to fully maximizing their abilities. However, when they first came in during different years, 
I looked at each one to see what he had and then said to myself, oh, gracious, if he can make a real contribution, a playing contribution to our team, then we must be pretty lousy. However, what I couldn't see was what these men had inside. Both of them worked so hard to bring out their best. They gave me, and more importantly, the team, very close to everything they could possibly give. Conrad Burke became a starter for two and a half years. Doug McIntosh became our starting center and played on a national championship team. You may not have heard of them, but each epitomizes what I define as success in an individual. They came close to making the most of their God-given talent. Perceptions of Success I'm perceived as a very successful basketball coach because of the 10 national championships UCLA won while I was there. But I know of coaches I consider every bit as capable as I am, better in fact, who never won a national championship, never even came close. Did they fail as coaches? In the first 14 years I coached at UCLA, we didn't win a national championship, even though I worked every bit as hard in those years as when we won 10 of them. Did I fail as a coach during the first 14 years? Was I a success only when I coached a team that won a national championship? Zero national championships. If UCLA had never won a national championship while I was coaching there, I would still have considered myself very successful because I was judging myself on other things, things I had some control over. For example, how hard am I trying to produce the very best team we can possibly be? Had we not won any championships, I would have been disappointed, yes, but still a success in my own eyes. I would have had peace of mind because of the effort I put forth. The ten national titles provided no additional peace of mind nor sense of validation of my efforts as a coach. That I already had. I had succeeded long before I was called a success. Failure is not fatal, but failure to change might be. Failure to change is often just stubbornness that comes from an unwillingness to learn, an inability to realize that you're not perfect. There cannot be progress without change, even though not all change is progress. My rule regarding UCLA's dress code for travel changed with the times. Initially, I insisted on a coat and tie, dress slacks, and polished shoes for an overall clean-cut appearance. Eventually, I came to understand that the culture had changed. Ideas of what constituted appropriate dress had changed, and the coat and tie were viewed as only one possibility by many people I respected. I realized the fundamental issue was not specifically a coat or a tie, dress slacks, or polished shoes. The issue was overall appearance. To me, a clean-cut appearance was important for team image and self-image. I told athletes if they could accomplish that without a coat and tie, fine. Eventually, my dress code required only that they have a clean-cut appearance when we traveled. That remained because it was important. I came to believe a tie in itself wasn't the important issue, and I changed my rule. Big Money Players and Coaches Coaches are paid millions of dollars today, and players make tens of millions of dollars. It started happening soon after I left UCLA, so I'm often asked if I'm envious. Folks say, Coach Wooden, imagine what you could make today. It doesn't concern me in the least. What concerns me is that over which I have some measure of control, and I can't control what others make or employers pay them. However, I can control whether or not I worry about it, and I don't.
I have no say over how much somebody chooses to pay Shaquille O'Neal or anyone else. In fact, I'm happy if someone can earn that amount of money. It's completely out of hand, but they have a right to take what is offered. It's simple. Don't compare yourself to somebody else, especially materially. If I'm worrying about the other guy and what he's doing, about what he's making, about all the attention he's getting, I'm not going to be able to do what I'm capable of doing. It's a guaranteed way to make yourself miserable. Envy, jealousy, and criticism can become cancerous. They hurt the person who feels them rather than the person they're directed toward. If I'm envious of how much Mr. O'Neill or a coach is paid, is that going to hurt him in any way? Of course not. It's going to hurt me. He may know what it's like to earn a million dollars, but I know what it was like to be able to get a good meal for 25 cents. Neither of us should envy the other in this regard. Adversity makes you stronger. Most all good things come through adversity. There's a poem that says, Looking back, it seems to me, all the grief that had to be left me when the pain was o'er stronger than I was before. I believe that. We get stronger when we test ourselves. Adversity can make us better. We must be challenged to improve. And adversity is the challenger. Character creates longevity. I believe ability can get you to the top, but it takes character to keep you there. A big part of character is the self-discipline needed to avoid complacency. Resist temptation and understand that past success doesn't guarantee future success. It's so easy to relax, to cut corners, to let down after you've reached your goal and begin thinking you can just turn it on automatically without proper preparation. It takes real character to keep working as hard or even harder once you're there. When you read about an athlete or team that wins over and over and over, remind yourself, more than ability, they have character. Remember this your lifetime through. Tomorrow there will be more to do and failure waits for all who stay with some success made yesterday. Tomorrow you must try once more, and even harder than before. Kareem learns from adversity. When the Rules Committee outlawed the dunk after the 1966-67 season, I supported it because I didn't think that shot was good for the game. I still feel that way. However, Kareem disagreed. He thought the rule change was aimed directly at him. In fact, though I don't know if this was true, I felt the change was directed at the Houston players. They would frequently hang on the rim, actually bend it during the warm-up. When we played them in 67, Cruz had to come out with ladders to straighten it out before our game got underway. Whatever the source of the rules change, Kareem would no longer be able to stuff the ball without being penalized, and he was unhappy. I told him, Lewis, this will make you a better player. You'll have to work harder developing your hook shot the little short shots off the boards, and the shots around the basket. There is no way this will do anything but make you a much better ball player. He nodded. And then I added, Lewis, remember when you get to the pros, you won't have forgotten how to dunk. When Kareem became a professional, one of his most feared shots was the skyhook, a shot he had developed and perfected after the rule change. He had faced a challenge and used it to strengthen himself. Adversity can do that but it needs your assistance. Persistence is stronger than failure. Abraham Lincoln is acknowledged as one of America's greatest presidents. Here is a brief summary of his career. Failed in business, 
1831. Defeated for legislature, 1832. Failed in business again, 1833. Elected to legislature, 1834. Sweetheart died, 1835. Had nervous breakdown, 1836. Defeated for speaker, 1838. Defeated for elector, 1840. Defeated for congressional nomination, 1843. Elected to Congress, 1846. Defeated for Congress, 1848. Defeated for Senate, 1855. Defeated for Vice President, 1856. Defeated for Senate, 1859. Elected President of the United States, 1860. Few people have suffered more personal, professional, and political adversity than Abraham Lincoln. He persisted in the face of failure and emerged victorious. Another president, Calvin Coolidge, described it very well. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The model Mr. Lincoln gave us with his persistence is one we can remember in the face of our own setbacks. And what is most wondrous of all is that persistence is a quality that we ourselves control. You and only you can decide whether you will stay the course. Always be progressing. You must never stand still. You're either moving upward a little bit or you're going the other way. You can't expect to go upward too quickly, but you can sure go down very quickly. The slide down happens in a hurry. Progress comes slowly but steadily if you are patient and prepare diligently. Every member of every UCLA basketball team who ever played and practiced with us will tell you that one of my most common expressions was move, move, move. I meant it both physically and mentally. The India Rubber Man. My nickname when I was a basketball player at Purdue was the India Rubber Man because when I was knocked down, I would immediately bounce right back up and keep playing. In the team photograph from 1931, I'm the only player with bandages on both knees. I've always believed that hustle can make up for a lot of mistakes. Balance in basketball and life. Balance is perhaps the most important word for a player or a coach to keep in mind. You have to have emotional balance. You have to have physical balance. You have to have mental balance. As a coach, I had to teach players individual balance and then the balance of losing themselves in the group for the greater good of the team. Balance means keeping things in proper perspective, not permitting either excessive exuberance or dejection to interfere with preparation, performance, or subsequent individual or team behavior. Balance is important in many aspects of basketball. Besides physical, emotional, and mental balance, we need squad balance, rebounding balance, offensive balance, defensive balance, size balance, 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 balance. Same thing is true in life. We must have physical, emotional, and mental balance. Balance between making a living and making a home. We must keep things in perspective, both the good and the bad. And we must listen to achieve that balance. Listen and observe at home and work. Balance the work against the play. Achieving balance in life, or basketball, requires great, great effort, desire, and alertness. Life is complicated, and it's easy to get things totally out of balance. That's when you have a problem. The Importance of Basketball 
Basketball is just a game, but if I was doing my job as a coach, that game of basketball would help our players by preparing them to do well in life, to reach their full potential as individuals. When they did that, I felt very proud as a coach. That's more rewarding to me than all the championships and titles and awards. I'm asked, Coach, aren't you particularly proud of all the players that went on to the pros after they left UCLA, fellows like Bill Walton, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Sidney Wicks, Gail Goodrich, David Myers, Lucius Allen, Mike Warren, Keith Erickson, Walt Hazard, Henry Bibby, Marcus Johnson, and the others? Yes, but I'm equally proud of the fellows who became doctors, lawyers, dentists, ministers, businessmen, teachers, and coaches. The coach whose philosophy I have admired as much as any coach I've ever been associated with is Amos Alonzo Stagg. He was coaching football at the University of Chicago when they were a national power. After one very successful year, a reporter said, Coach Stagg, it was a great year, a really great year. Coach Stagg said, I won't know for another 20 years or so whether you're correct. He meant that it would take that long to see how the youngsters under his supervision turned out in life. That's how I feel. I'm most proud of the athlete who does well with his life. That's where success is. Basketball is just a very small part of it. The Olympics, good and not so good. There are two Olympics, the Special Olympics and the Olympic Games. I support the Special Olympics. My goodness, there you'll witness what the spirit of the game is all about. You'll see the thrill on the face of a competitor who comes in last but gives it absolutely everything he or she has. They prepare hard. They compete hard. They succeed even with a last-place finish. This is a lesson with real depth. I no longer feel that supportive of the Olympic Games, which have become almost professional. You'll see an athlete complaining about coming in second because he knows it will cost him in endorsements. Going for the gold has too often become going for the green. The final score. The final score is not the final score. My final score is how prepared you were to execute near your own particular level of competence, both individually and as a team. There is nothing wrong with that other fellow being better than you are, as long as you did everything you possibly could to prepare yourself for the competition. That is all you have control over. That is all you should concern yourself with. It may be that the other fellow's level of competency is simply higher than yours. That doesn't make you a loser. In 1962, in the Final Four against Cincinnati, who won the championship that year, we lost in the last few seconds of our semifinal game. However, Walter Hazard, Gary Cunningham, Peter Blackman, John Green, Fred Slaughter, and the other UCLA players left the court as winners in my eyes. I was disappointed that we lost, of course, but I had the greatest pride in how the team had performed and how they had prepared hard and progressed during the year. We were almost 20 points down in the first 10 minutes of the game, and then came from behind to even it up at the half. We fought very hard in the second half, and Cincinnati perhaps had superior personnel. But what I saw out on the court during that game was a UCLA team that came as close as we could come to being the best that we could be. That's a wonderful accomplishment. Goodness gracious sakes, am I proud of that effort. So proud. Even now. Was I disappointed we were outscored? I'm still disappointed we were outscored, but I was never dejected. Mostly what I was, and am, is proud. Our team was outscored, but we were winners. I had the greatest pride in how the players prepared, progressed, and performed.
I felt this philosophy would have a much greater positive impact on the outcome of events than a stress on trying to outscore opponents. It's a focus on improving yourself rather than comparing yourself to the other team as indicated by a score. Furthermore, when you get too engrossed in those things over which you have no control, it will adversely affect those things over which you do have control, namely your preparation. You respect everyone, then you simply make the strongest effort to prepare to the fullest extent of your abilities. The result will take care of itself, and you should be willing to accept it. The glory is in getting there. When people ask me now if I miss coaching UCLA basketball games, the national championships, the attention, the trophies, and everything that goes with them, I tell them this. I miss the practices. I don't miss the games or the tournaments or all the other faldy raw. As Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, it is better to travel, hopefully, than arrive. I tried to do that. It's the practices I miss most, even now. Part 3. Coaching, Teaching, Leading In great attempts, it is glorious even to fail. Wilfred A. Peterson A sacred trust. A leader, particularly a teacher or coach, has a most powerful influence on those he or she leads, perhaps more than anyone outside of the family. Therefore, it is the obligation of that leader, teacher, or coach to treat such responsibility as a grave concern. I consider it a sacred trust, helping to mold character, instill productive principles and values, and provide a positive example to those under my supervision. Furthermore, it is a privilege to have that responsibility, opportunity, and obligation, one that should never be taken lightly. Philosophers and Prison Guards Mr. Webster indicates that, among other things, a philosopher is a person who meets all events, whether favorable or unfavorable, with calmness and composure. A philosopher is also one who has a love of wisdom, studies the general principles of a field of knowledge or activity, and the processes governing thought, conduct, character, morals, and behavior. I believe these same traits are inherent in a leader. A real leader is much more than simply a person with authority. Prison guard has authority, but he or she is not a leader. A leader doesn't need a gun to motivate individuals. Who can lead? Leadership is the ability to get individuals to work together for the common good and the best possible results, while at the same time letting them know they did it themselves. Some people are automatic leaders. Some can never be leaders. But many who don't think of themselves as leaders have the potential to become such if they understand the fundamentals of getting individuals to work together. Those fundamentals can be learned. I learned them. But Coach Wooden, times have changed. There was a time when the vast majority would follow blindly, even into the shadow of death. But such is not the case now. Young people of today are far more aware, inclined to be more openly critical and more genuinely inquisitive than they used to be so leaders must work with them somewhat differently. I wrote the preceding observation more than a quarter of a century ago. Are people really that different today? Have times changed so much? I wonder about that. Why did Wooden win? There is no area of basketball in which I am a genius. None. Tactically and strategically, I'm just average, and this is not offering false modesty. 
We won national championships while I was coaching at UCLA because I was above average in analyzing players, getting them to fill roles as part of a team, paying attention to fundamentals and details, and working well with others, both those under my supervision and those whose supervision I was under. Additionally, I enjoyed very hard work. There's nothing fancy about these qualities. They have wide application and equal effectiveness in any team endeavor anywhere. If there is any mystery as to why UCLA won 10 national championships while I was the coach, that may clear it up. A Leader's Difficult Task A person in a position of leadership must make decisions. Making decisions is a tough job. Those under a leader can make suggestions. Making suggestions is an easy job. Everybody has a suggestion. Not everybody has a decision. Perhaps that's why there are so few leaders at least good leaders. Respect. The most essential thing for a leader to have is the respect of those under his or her supervision. It starts with giving them respect. You must make it clear that you are working together. Those under your supervision are not working for you, but with you, and you all have a common goal. Remember, you can have respect for a person without necessarily liking that individual. Coach Amos Alonzo Stagg said, I loved all my players. I didn't like them all, but I did love them all. What does that mean? You love your children, but you may not like some of the things they do. We are instructed, love thy neighbor as thyself. That doesn't mean we have to like everything our neighbor does. That has nothing to do with our love for them. You must have respect, which is a part of love, for those under your supervision. Then they will do what you ask and more. They'll go the extra distance, make the extra effort in trying to accomplish the most they can within the framework of the team. If they don't respect their leader, people just punch the clock in and out. There's no clock watching when a leader has respect. A leader is fair. Fairness is giving all people the treatment they earn and deserve. doesn't mean treating everyone alike. That's unfair because everyone doesn't earn the same treatment. That's why I didn't treat all players alike. I didn't treat Walter Hazard like I treated Gail Goodrich. I didn't treat Bill Walton like I treated Keith Wilkes. Contrary to what you might think, it enhanced teamwork because almost every player I coached knew that he would be treated fairly, that he would be given exactly what he had earned and deserved. They worked harder as a result. It's true in sports and elsewhere in life. In all circumstances, whether as a coach, teacher, or business leader, you must begin by determining exactly what is fair. That means you must eliminate prejudice of all types. Can you do it 100%? Probably not, but you can try. Those under you will recognize that you at least are making a sincere effort. They will realize that you will be wrong on occasion. They must understand, as must you, that you are imperfect. But as long as those under your supervision know that you are trying hard to be fair, you'll do fine, whether it's with your children, employees, or athletes. Walk the walk. A leader's most powerful ally is his or her own example. Leaders don't just talk about doing something, they do it. Sven Nader, a former player at UCLA, told me once, Coach, you walk the walk. He meant that I led by example. Pride as a motivator. Pride is a better motivator than fear. I never wanted to teach through fear, punishment, or intimidation. Fear may work in the short term to get people to do something, but over the long run, I believe personal pride is a much greater motivator. 
It produces far better results that last for a much longer time. Who would I prefer to work with? An individual who has great personal pride or one who is fearful of punishment? That's an easy choice for me. Remember, pride comes when you give respect. Dictator Leaders Abraham Lincoln said, Most anyone can stand adversity, but to test a person's character, give him power. I believe there was a difference between General George S. Patton and General Omar Bradley. General Bradley had a great concern for those under his supervision. He knew what had to be done, and he wasn't looking for self-glory. If you saw the movie Patton, you saw a man who acted as a dictator. While I would want him on my side in time of war, I believe we should lead athletes and associates in a different manner. There are coaches out there who have won championships with a dictator approach, among them Vince Lombardi and Bobby Knight. I had a different philosophy. I didn't want to be a dictator to my players or assistant coaches or managers. For me, concern, compassion, and consideration were always priorities of the highest order. Leaders listen. Listen to those under your supervision. Really listen. Don't act as though you're listening and let it go in one ear and out the other. Faking it is worse than not doing it at all. A good motto is, others too have brains. Another golden rule. Reward individuals for things well done. It doesn't have to be in a material way. Sometimes a pat on the back is more meaningful in many ways than something material, a smile, a nod. Leadership and punishment. Leaders have to discipline. Those who dispense discipline must remember that its purpose is to help, to prevent, to correct, to improve, rather than to punish. You are not likely to get productive results if you antagonize. Punishment antagonizes. Furthermore, it is important to understand the purpose of criticism. Criticism is not meant to punish, but rather to correct something that is preventing better results. The only goal of criticism or discipline is improvement. You must keep that in mind and try to the best of your ability to use tact. Public embarrassment. I feel that hard public criticism embarrasses people, antagonizes them, and may discourage them from being receptive to your message. It is counterproductive whether it's on a basketball court or in a business establishment. Occasionally, it can be a useful tool, however. One player, and I will not embarrass him by using his name, needed to be goaded publicly. I had to make him mad at me at times until he was determined that he was really going to show me. However, such public embarrassment is very rarely useful.